Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Stacks. This is Jay. And F is for fake Orson Welles. This is, I'm doing a very bad impression. See, the difference is if it's a good or a bad fake. Orson Welles is like, (laughs) Orson Welles is like one of the classic impressions. Uh, There's a town in the north of France. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Palm the sun wine. Uh, The California wine. Uh, <laughs> this week we are talking Orson Welles, uh, one of my absolute favorite directors, easily top five. His final completed picture in his lifetime, F for Fake from 1975. And it's sort of a bunch of pictures that all sort of kaleidoscoped into one. I had a time trying to follow this movie. <laughs> it's... It's uh, more a movie that you need to let just take you on its ride. It's it's a personal essay film. Maybe the first of its kind, really. I did let it take me for a ride. And then when I was when it was over, I was like, what the hell even happened? It's it's this whole thing about art and fakery and forgery. And what is the value of art? Uh, is art valued by experts uh, intrinsically better in some way. There's a, a, a whole lot to dig into. This is one of my very favorites. Experts. We <laughs> bow down to them. Yeah, we, he doesn't have a lot of good things to say about experts, and really no one in the movie does, even though some no. of them are arguably experts, and he also claims to have expertise in certain things. But uh, Orson Welles is extremely willing to uh, call himself a forger and a charlatan. And he, he keeps returning to it and like, no, no, I know I'm one of these people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm full of shit, too. I have been lying my ass off. This is also an autobiography. Uh, <laughs> so it opens with what I think is sort of this discarded film that they were working on about a magician where it's him doing these magic tricks for children at a train station. Okay, so this is from yet another different film. Actually, I feel feel like this stuff, this particular part of it, there's a later one where he does not have a beard, uh, which must have been prior to any of the other stuff shot. But this one, he's got the beard and stuff, and it's very similar to how he looks in the editing bay. So I think this is some of the Gary Graver stuff that he was putting together at the end of the production while they were editing it. And all the Clifford Irving stuff came out. It's like, wait, we have to completely change what this movie is. So one of the things that I had trouble with was from watching the movie, because of the way he talks, he kind of goes around like in circles and he's also very poetic with his speech mm-hmm. which is great I love to it. listen it's to beautiful <laughs> makes it very difficult for me to follow i actually couldn't figure out what exactly it was that cliff irving had done that made him a faker oh i i will get into all of that i've seen this oh. movie probably like 20 or 30 times it's one of my absolute favorites i've watched it for years and years and uh, I'm very clear on who everyone is and what happened. <laughs> oh, cool. Because I've just been, I just went along for the ride and it is a ride. Oh, it's such a ride. It's surprisingly fun for being a movie about sort of just this weird rambling documentary about art forgery and uh, the role of art in the world. <laughs> rambling is the word. 
I'm also a art, a type of art forger too. Let me tell you about my life. Yeah, he he really gets into it at various. He times. does and get into it. I I really like the autobiography section and the parallel we get to Citizen Kane, where it's the Howard Hughes movie that he was going to make, and we get that one little bit. But we're we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> so the the first part with him at the train station, I feel, must be very end of production. It's uh, where he's shooting some extra stuff with the magician thing to sort of tie everything together. Because here he's got the beard, and there's the the other one where he's got the where he's compressing Oyakodar into a suitcase, oh, where yeah. <laughs> he is clean shaven or or maybe just like slightly uh, stubbly. So one must have taken place much later. Uh-huh. And, and Oya is here; she's watching from the train, or maybe it's shot at a completely different time. Because there's a lot of stuff like that there's reaction a lot shot. Of that. <laughs> the uh the checking out oya's ass montage oh so good which <laughs> oya claims was completely her idea like she does a commentary on this oh really mm-hmm. Wait, so good. so she is real yeah she's a real person okay just the the story about her grandfather we'll, we'll get to but yeah well. uh, yeah <laughs> So she's interesting. She's just sort of filtered throughout the movie. You keep checking in with her. So her first appearance is she's on the train leaving the station while he's doing these little uh, close-up magic tricks for kids at the train station. I like the magic thing because it sets the whole stage for everything to follow uh, because you're already looking for a trick. Yeah, he he's establishing that he is going to trick you and that he is pulling illusions. And that's what film is. It's not fake. They're illusions, Michael. <laughs> yeah. Uh, someone says, I heard you used to be a magician. He says, I'm a charlatan. Used <laughs> to be a magician. I'm still working on it. <laughs> I love his magician outfit. It's so great. He's got this great cloak. He's got those... ca- yeah, cloak. Yeah, 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 I guess it's more of a cape. You're right. Cape, cloak, clape. The the all black uh, to to sort of go with the go with the gray of his beard, and he's got the gloves. He's got like that that angled hat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty iconic look that I had seen before, but didn't know was from this movie. It's great. It's sort of how I tend to picture Wells uh, in his later years, more than you know, obviously. Kane in his younger years, he mm-hmm. he is Kane, but uh, for his older years, this is sort of the image of him that I like to have more so than like the Palmason wine commercials or the <laughs> fish sticks ones. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which is maybe more people's uh, primary uh, visual representation of Wells these days in in like his later years, which is like, ah, oh, I get it. It's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a toy that beats up other toys. It's a movie about toys that are terrible to each other. He, he's a he's a planet that eats other planets in that movie. This is just one end. But in this first part, he's doing all of these tricks with this one kid, and he pulls out a key, and he does his thing. The key isn't symbolic of anything. This isn't that kind of a movie. <laughs> <laughs> And and he sort of throws back the falsehood. He he reveals like, by the way, I've got a whole film crew here. This is all. This is not just uh, me doing tricks. I I have a film crew. Here's Francois Reichenbach over here. He's the guy who hired me to do this. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, Gary Graver is the cinematographer and kind of almost a co-director. He was sort of the guy who was working with him in the editing bay and doing all of the stuff for the later part. Oh, okay. Okay. So you remember Gary Graver? He was in, uh, he, he was Al Adamson's main cinematographer. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Isn't that cool? Yeah. <laughs> and he was like top collaborator on this movie. Uh, so he says, uh, a magician is uh, just an actor playing the part of a magician, which I, I thought was a really interesting and profound way to start the movie. I guess that's true, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Completely true. Yeah, because, uh, you know, that that's that is the you know, it's it's an illusion, Michael. You know, it's him <laughs> playing a magician. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, of course magicians don't really have magical powers, but they have to convince you they do. That's that's acting. Yeah, he's that's right. That's illusion. It's acting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and it's interesting how he ties magic into acting, and you know they're they're both professions that he's sort of worked at and perfected in some ways and failed at commercially. You know, it just it didn't work out for him. He made what is still broadly considered the greatest film of all time and you know when it was made everyone's like yeah it's an incredible film but we can't really praise it that much or we'll get crucified by hearst so (laughs) good job we're we're just gonna put you in somewhere else you you can't really make big pictures anymore (laughs) that's a shame yeah (laughs) he's got such a bizarre career because like so many uh, discarded projects along the way and things that just sort of morphed into other ones like this one is just uh, a whole production in motion like you're seeing the movie being made as it's as you're watching it <laughs> it does kind of get that sort of feeling because it does feel like about halfway through the movie just changes direction as if orson just changed his mind about what it was going to be about yeah or it just gets to a point it's like okay now i i've, I've gotten to a point where i want to talk about this other thing and then we'll kind of tie it all together at the end or, you know, it's it's all to serve this one point that he has that all of these things are sort of uh, floating around in his mind with his uh, legacy. Because I, I feel this is very much a movie about himself and his own legacy as an artist. That's definitely it's definitely in there. That's it's definitely always kind of in the background, because as even as he's talking about these uh two two different forger guys two different fakers he's he does always kind of bring it around to himself all the time basically yeah because it it is very much about him he he's he aligns himself with both of them and i think more so with elmir as sort of the more honest faker in a weird sort of way (laughs) that that's kind of the impression i didn't that i did get from elmir he's like yeah, no, I painted all these paintings. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a Modini. Mo- Modigliani. Mo- that's uh, it. <laughs> I, I love this bit. They're, they're at the train station and they put up a wall behind him. I love that shot. Because like, they, they just bring in a wall and then cut elsewhere with him in front of the same sort of wall in that outfit. But it's you know, it, it's still that wall. So it is like, okay, I'm going to lay it out for you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a film about trickery and fraud. <laughs> <laughs> and like they, they zoom out from the wall and it's not in the train station anymore. It's this, uh, this set. 
Yeah, I think it's the just his editing bay because you've got all of the film canisters and stuff in there and the mixing boards and stuff. Him like telling the story about these two fakers and then event like cutting in with him walking through this through these different sets and locations, mm. adding his own uh, thing. That Jonathan Frake show, Truth or Fiction or or Fact or Fiction, whatever Factor it was fiction. from the nineties, completely stole the from this movie. Oh, completely. This is such a copied format. This was pretty groundbreaking at the time, I think. But, uh, you know, the Charlie Brooker show was uh, a really great comedic news show that was sort of dealing with the actual news and reporting on reporting of the news. But it was satirical. Uh, You've probably seen the Philomena Philomena Kunk Christmas. Oh, that's uh, that's from Charlie Brooker. He went on to do Black Mirror and stuff, but before that, he did a news show that was very much like this. Oh, you know, I think I've seen that show. I think so. We, like, it used to be a thing. That he, he did a New Year's thing every year, and we used to watch it each year uh, when yeah, he still did the movie nights. And he stopped <clears> because it got too depressing around 20, what, 16, I think it was? I'm not sure. And also, it's because Black Mirror took off. And he just didn't have the time to devote to it anymore because it just became his main thing. Because he's the guy who created it. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. So uh, he says, any story is almost certainly some kind of lie. (laughs) Uh, That storytellers are all fabricators of reality. I could tell a story that's 100% true. It's not interesting, but it's 100% true. Right, but the the idea of that an actual proper story, a story that someone would want to hear that is told by a storyteller, is going to be one that is illustrated in some way. It, it may have forms of exaggeration. It's told through the eye of a person. Uh, mm. Someone is interpreting it through their own point of view. But he says, but not this film. <laughs> not this time. This is a promise. During the next hour. <laughs> so you're being like, I caught this immediately. Hour. Yeah, right. <laughs> this movie is more than an hour long. Uh, hmm. Not a lot more. You know, it's, it's a short movie. It's 88 minutes. Yeah, like, yeah, an hour and 28. So, but for the next hour, he's yeah. going to tell no lies. But, but he, he pushes it back after a little bit. He says it here and then. It's like, okay, let's meet some of our people. We've got Elmir de Orie, who had like 60 fake names, and he is just the greatest art forger of all time. I love it because we never refer to Elmir by his last name because I don't think Orson knew what it was. Oh, no, he says it a few times. It comes up. Oh, okay. uh, Elmir de Orie, uh, but mostly Elmir because, you know, he was friends with him. He hung out with him a bunch. You know, they're, they're just hanging out his villa for quite some time. He seems to be a pretty uh, relaxed sort of dude. He has a, a Legend of Zelda. He has like this uh, this one shirt he wears. Looks like Link's tunic from Legend of Zelda. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Clifford Irving says about him, his world is a world of make-believe. Uh, you're one to talk, Clifford. <laughs> right, yeah. And then, you know, <laughs> Clifford Irving, as it turns out. Uh, so they, they also introduce Francois Reichenbach, who is the producer of this film. He sort of hired... He he was already working on a documentary about Elmir. Oh, okay. Okay. 
because you know he was one of the early people to buy from Elmir <laughs> to to oh. like when he was an art dealer. <laughs> right. <laughs> so he's kind of one of the villains in this movie secretly, just kind of hanging out in the the throughout the whole thing cuz like he was the producer and he shot a bunch of it too. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but it was Clifford Irving who brought Reichenbach to Ibiza to meet Elmir. And now Clifford Irving was the guy who wrote the biography on Elmir, is that right? Yes, fake. <laughs> it was the title of the book. And yeah, we, we see the cover of it very frequently. Just uh, uh, Elmir's eyes and just the word fake, 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 fake. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The uh, just the scene transitions are always just the letters, the words fake, just flipping across the TV screen. Yeah. Like, you know, news type. Uh, yeah. Kind of a, a, a Citizen Kane kind of thing, too. Uh, he really has a consistent feel to his films over time. And this one's obviously harking back to Kane at various times. Mm-hmm. He, he, well, yeah, he references part of the making of Citizen Kane in this film. Yeah, and then they do the News on the March sequence that's like an alternate Kane about Hughes. <laughs> so Irving's talking about the real value of a painting, you know, not whether it's real or fake. It's whether it's a good fake or a bad fake. Right. And that's how we know that my Orson Welles impression has no value. <laughs> it's a bad fake. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is that, that's sort of the quote that leads into the opening credits where we see uh, a shot from one of the versions of. Well, I, I think it's actually not War of the Worlds. It's uh, I, I want to say it's Invasion of the Saucer Men. Or Invasion of the Flying Saucers. Attack of the Flying Saucers? It, it's one that's used a lot. The, the the stock footage of this is used a lot. It's definitely not actually War of the Worlds, though. No, those aliens are different. Well, yeah, and, and that's a color film. Oh, And I, I oh, do really? recognize. Yeah, uh, yeah the original War of the Worlds, it's from like 53 or something. And yeah, it's, oh, it's beautiful Technicolor, actually. I thought it was older. Yeah, it's Never seen it right? Oh, it's a good movie. Do it sometime. Uh, but he was not involved with the film, so I guess he just did not have any rights to anything for that. But there's this one movie. I, I'm sure it has flying saucers in the title, and it is used as stock footage very frequently. So it's some shots from that that appear in the main credits to sort of suggest his War of the Worlds stuff. Yeah, I think I've seen those shots before. Um, oh, the saucers just crashing into things. Yeah, like it hits the Washington Monument. <laughs> or the White House. Right. Uh, it, it, I cannot. Oh, I've, I've seen it in so many things. I should be able to pick it. I think it's Invasion of the Saucermen or Flying Saucers. Mars Attacks? But, <laughs> no. No. <laughs> that wasn't until the 90s. That's a yeah, Tim I, Burton picture. I don't think I've seen that one either. Holy shit. I've, hmm, I've seen it once and I've seen it. 150 times because like uh when i worked at future shop it was a movie that for whatever reason we had playing on a loop on the tvs oh so the sound wasn't on but i heard i saw it quite a bit another one was lady in the water by m night Shyamalan. (laughs) oh yeah he did a bunch of movies that like he did a whole bunch of movies that have like such it's gone okay so, uh, yeah, after the opening credits, we get that 
Oyakodar montage, the walking and men gazing at her. It's a, it is about the gaze. Yep. Um, and it's very clear from the beginning that these men are not actually all looking at her. No, it's just a bunch of shots of men looking and some shots of her walking. But the way you put them together, you see, it exactly. creates the illusion. And and it, it's sort of important in establishing the movie as this emphatically constructed POV that filmmaking is a point of view that is made by a person who has an opinion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, we're frequently cutting to uh, Orson Welles in the editing bay, putting the movie together, looking at the reels of films like, look. Movies are a construction and they are meant to make you think a certain way about a thing, which is fascinating because I, 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 again, I don't feel like anyone had really done this stuff before. Um, before the seventies, probably not. <laughs> so the, then we have that one, which I'm sure is from some discarded film about him doing magic tricks where he has Oya get into this crusher that, uh, pops out, a, pops her out into a suitcase at the bottom. <laughs> oh yeah, because the plane ticket is so expensive, so he's just gonna bring her in his carry-on. Uh, uh, uh. It's kind of cute. It's it's a neat it's, little trick. Uh, I, I I had fun watching it. I didn't know where it was gonna go. Yeah, and it it doesn't have like he is not looking as magicianly as he does on the train station. He's just kind of wearing an overcoat he looks kind of shabby he doesn't have the beard or the hat he's chawing on a cigar (laughs) so he's he says trickery in this film about trickery it's like okay let's repeat our promise in writing (laughs) (laughs) so at nine minutes in he says for the next hour will completely tell the truth <laughs> you know we, we promise not to uh tell any lies in the next hour there's still 17 minutes afterwards where yeah. he could if you wanted to there's a little I space see what after you're that. doing there orson mm-hmm. i see what you're doing so they 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 mentioned that you know they're making this elmir doc and that, you know, they have all these different movies that they're kind of putting together and they're editing this doc- documentary about Elmir. And then suddenly the news hits about Irving, that he was a hoaxer. And suddenly, like, Irving is the biggest person in the universe. And they're like, holy shit, we have all of these interviews with this guy Irving. So what exactly did he do then? Did he, like, falsify information in his biography? A falsified information in a biography of Howard Hughes. He okay. made it. In, he made it up entirely. Oh, he never had any uh, contact with Hughes. Hughes had never heard of the guy. <laughs> so it'd be like if I wrote a biography about Howard Hughes. Yeah, and the oh. thing is, the claims he made are like what you hear about Howard Hughes now. <laughs> like <laughs> the the Mr. Burns episode where uh, the he has the casino. And oh, he's yeah. got the Kleenex boxes on his uh, feet, and he's <laughs> got the the wooden plane. He's like, oh my in. god, that's all from a <laughs> Clifford Irving's book about Howard Hughes. Wait, the wooden plane wasn't real? <laughs> well, the wooden plane was real. It, oh. Just you know, it wasn't <laughs> a, a tiny model that he kept right. in the thing. Yeah, the Spruce Goose was real. You ever see oh, the okay. Aviator? No, I never did. 
That's uh, Martin Scorsese's movie about Hughes with uh, DiCaprio as Hughes. Pretty interesting. Oh, I, I knew it was DiCaprio. I didn't know it was about Hughes. More than it was Martin Scorsese. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. A pretty good picture. I mean, you know, Scorsese, consistent guy. Yeah, um, I got to watch more of his films. I think I've only seen, uh, um, there's one we did, Serpico was his, right? That's Sidney Lumet. Oh, okay. Maybe uh, Scorsese, that... Goodfellas? I Taxi seen it. Driver? I saw... Raging Bull? Gangs of New York. Gangs of New York? That's it. That's I saw Scorsese. That. Hugo? I think you saw Hugo. Did I see Hugo? I might his kid's Hugo. movie. It's a guy who, a kid who works in the French metro, and he meets uh, Melies, who made a trip to the moon. And I think Melies is played by Bob Hoskins. No, that's not right. Someone that doesn't ring a bell. Maybe it's Jim Broadbent. I want to say Jim Broadbent. Uh, did you see Shutter Island? Another of his more recent ones. That one was good. That one was on my radar, but I never got to it. Okay. But like in terms of his classic ones, you've never seen Goodfellas. That's surprising. I never saw Goodfellas. Casino. Nope. <laughs> uh, We're just going to talk about movies <laughs> I haven't seen today. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I'm surprised you haven't seen much uh, Scorsese. He's, yeah, he's one of those guys. <laughs> he doesn't like Marvel movies, so, you know, I should like him more. <laughs> yeah, you can agree with him on certain things. Uh, he, yeah, his films are very important in terms of like the... 60s into 70s, he was the one who really revolutionized uh, using music in movies and using uh, kind of just a, a much more active camera. One of the main film brats of that period. Okay. So, uh, yeah, they, they make their promise and they, they're talking about Irving. And we, we have the clip of Irving talking about Elmir's Castle of Illusions. Uh, such as the, that he's broken no laws and cheated no one. <laughs> and it's like, interesting that we're hearing this bit from Irving now after he's been revealed as a faker, too, with his own castle of illusions. Yeah, and I, I love when, <laughs> I love at the end when they just take him down and then he's just like, oh, uh, well, I'm just going to tell everything then. Yeah. Uh, he did ultimately just like release a book called The Hoax about his hoax. What really happened? Yeah, exactly. It's one of those. So we, we get back to Elmir. He came to Ibiza in 1959 uh, from the U.S. where he had been for a little while uh, selling his paintings uh, illicitly, more or less, I guess. Yeah, I'd say I'd say it's it's illegal. And they, he says specifically that aspects of life became too difficult, and that's why he left the U.S. So it's never directly mentioned here, but it's because he's gay. Oh, that's... And, and when he went to jail in Spain, that's what he was jailed for. Homosexuality. Oh. They, they couldn't... Yeah. They they weren't able to charge him as a forger. <laughs> really? So they got yeah, him no, for that? They, they got him for being gay fuckers yeah <laughs> so that's kind of an interesting thing that's just never really touched on in the movie but it's sort of there in the background hmm. so <laughs> him coming to abisa he's like it was simpatico like they say in chinese which of course you know that's not chinese <laughs> i don't think it is chinese simpatico. uh no and he says Ibiza is not for snobby society it's not london paris or omaha 
<laughs> Omaha. Omaha. Really? I don't think Omaha is for snobby people either, or or is it? I don't know. Well, I, I just like the cognitive dissonance of the way Elmir talks. It's it reminds me of fishing with John. Nope. <laughs> I could have sworn oh, I watched no, you fishing with John with you. John Lurie fishing with John. Some yes, because the Twin Peaks theme song reminded us of that. It's Peaksy, yeah. Uh, in Fishing with John, they have this narrator who just will randomly say things that have nothing to do with anything, uh, or or say words that just don't actually make sense. Uh, but you you sort of take it in because it's said with this authority, and he's a classic narrator voice, and it's a fishing show. Oh, okay. So, say the fishermen are covered with sores and boners. Oh, yes, second. <laughs> like, what? What? Hold on. And uh, John Lurie does a commentary track on those, and he says, yeah, it was specifically for the purposes of cognitive dissonance. And I think that's why El Mir does it, the, that he is just trying to mess with people. And he's just throwing in something that is obviously false in everything he says, just to see if people catch it, just to see, just to show that, like, yeah, he, he's faking 24-7. You know, he's on that hustle. <laughs> the true fans will understand. Yeah. <laughs> And that we meet Mark, who is this guy from Minnesota, who is Elmir's friend and bodyguard. Does that oh, make that, a bit more sense now that you now know? It does. Now it does. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think they sort of just very subtly have it in there that you know aspects of life had become too difficult. He had to come here. You know, he was jailed briefly, uh, and you know this is Mark. He's his friend. He's very devoted. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was thinking aspects of life in the USA becoming too difficult is kind of the story of everybody's life. Yeah, it's but, the thing that happens. But uh, that puts it into context. Yeah, and the 50s especially. And, oh, yeah. Know, this weird bohemian Hungarian artist. <laughs> so Yeah, they don't like that. No, not not into that. And, you know, there, there's the uh, forgery stuff that's sort of hanging over his head. And it's like, yeah, let's get out of here. Ibiza sounds good. <laughs> Ibiza does sound good, though, to be honest. Oh, yeah, it, it does look pretty swell. So they cut to the present and they say Irving is being sued for fifty five million dollars for slander. <laughs> and they say sued for telling the truth. <laughs> We're just asking questions here. <laughs> just asking the questions. <laughs> and and they say, you know, it, it also casts doubt on everything that he said about Elmir. Because he said, you know, his book after Elmir's book is a total fake. So what's this to say about Elmir as a fake? Is he a fake faker? <laughs> yeah, Wells' line, that Elmir himself is a fake faker <laughs> yeah it was it was so crazy i couldn't quite parse it but it was something like <laughs> it was a fake biography of a fake faker who may not have been fake written by a fake writer and yeah, i'm and just like he, what yeah it, it it gets you into these really weird mind fucks it's like well who's to say what reality is if we keep peeling things away like that you know that, that's that's a current modern political strategy yeah, yeah it is <laughs> and it works and Wells immediately turns around and is like, no, no, but he is a true faker. He's the greatest faker of all time. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he relays this thing about this guy, Van Dungen, who uh, who said, swore up and down that 
you know, Elmir's forgery of him. It's like, no, I painted that. That is absolutely a real one. <laughs> and one of the things that I think is totally key that Elmir says, and I think this is pretty important and maybe the definitive line of the movie is that it says, if they hang in galleries of great paintings long enough, they become real. Yeah, I mean, they're, <laughs> they're critical they're consensus. They become canonical. Yeah. Uh, like, like they're even talking later on, like, oh yeah, this is a Picasso, this is an Elmir, that's a Da Vinci. Right. <laughs> like, his name's just being said along with him, and as his paintings are in the galleries with him. Right, but people don't know that they are, and you know, they're credited to other painters and supposed to be great works by those painters and representing uh, periods of art, which is so fascinating. Yeah, I, I love the part where someone's asking, hey, Elmir, uh, I know you've got all these paintings that all these artists do. Do you have one where this artist did this subject? <laughs> yeah. No, I don't. That's, that's a Reichenbach. Later, yeah. Half uh, an hour later, oh, look, I found one. Yeah, I, I have that one in a little bit. That That's such a fascinating bit. Because that, that, I feel, is what generated this whole thing. Because Reichenbach then hired, started to do a documentary on him and then hired wells to finish it <laughs> so uh, we we see him do this a few times he sketches and burns a few things or it's like here i'll do a matisse check this out and he sketches in the style of matisse and does it all right and it's like look nice matisse and then it's like we better burn this one yeah uh, <laughs> i if this were to show up you know who knows what, what i'd get in trouble for don't want to be accused of, accused of forgery do we Mm, can't have that happening. No, not again. I love all these big dinner parties that Elmir is having where he's celebrating his infamy. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, there, there's this whole dinner party where he's just reading from all of these headlines about the book having come out, and everyone's like, "Hey, this guy's been forging art in all of these major galleries around the world." Is there, are people talking about this? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and there's this one guest who says the art world has been one huge confidence trick. Confidence trick. Now, I've heard that term before, but I can't recall what it actually means. So confidence trick is what a con man does. <laughs> a con man is short for confidence man. Oh. So, yeah, it just means the, the whole art world and art dealing is a con job. Like, it's it's a complete... Uh, the valuation is totally imaginary. Uh, it's it's entirely in the hands of art dealers who decide what things are worth based on their opinions, their so-called expertise. And we bow down to them. <laughs> <laughs> he yeah. does say that line. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. So there's Edith Irving, who I'm not totally clear what her relationship to Clifford Irving is. I don't think they're directly related. Okay, but well, maybe she's his wife. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I asked that question of uh, two characters in our second film. That's fair too. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to ass <laughs> I'm going to put out a disclaimer and say I don't think that that's going to be the case here. Yeah, I don't think so. So the, she says the fakes are as good as the real ones, and there's a market and a demand. And she's right. You know that that's the whole core of it that. He's he's made this money and he's been able to do this because 
people are willing to buy it. You know, there's very few actual paintings by these people who died very young. Someone can you know, add a couple more to their oeuvre. <laughs> hey, what's the harm? <laughs> I just I just love the whole idea of this. Oh, look, I discovered the Mona Lisa 2. Yeah. I just discovered it. Found it. So they, they get a bit into the backgrounds of everyone, and I think all of them have the same background, both Elmir and Irving and Wells himself. So they, they first start with Clifford. They say that he tried to write fiction originally, but he couldn't succeed as a fiction writer. But now he's like this extremely skyrocketing successful fiction writer because he sold it as truth. <laughs> <laughs> You know, as a hoax writer, he's a fucking superstar. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just thinking about how his book had the Kleenexes boxes on the thing, and I yeah, yeah, you've heard that it. came yeah. from the book. Yeah, <laughs> that wasn't real. Oh my god. <laughs> so uh, Wells said, "This is not, you know, in any way the century of the hoax." <laughs> <laughs> no, like, certainly hmm, not. No, no, that that couldn't be true. Well, I, I think he's mainly saying that hoaxing has always been a thing everyone yeah. has been doing it forever it's just the only thing that's new are experts and experts always needs to be in scare quotes when talked about in this movie oh always every time and it's just sort of the, the new thing is authority that art has establishment that there's this uh group of people who decide the monetary value of art where that was never really a thing prior to you know, maybe the, the 20th century, maybe 19th or something. People collected art, but, you know, that's because they were fabulously fucking wealthy. And, you know, it was just cool to have art. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea of monetary value for art, I never thought about it until seeing this movie. It's entirely arbitrary, isn't it? It's it's completely arbitrary. It's a one of a kind thing. It's just, you know, it's the it's decided by art dealers and it's this bizarre scarcity how how do you about well i guess there's like the whole the you whole have to be school. an expert yeah <laughs> <laughs> a whole school for how you find out what the value of an art is and how to become an expert yeah so wells says that there is an important post-impressionist art collection at a certain museum where they're all elmires uh, but they can't <laughs> say which <laughs> Can't, our, our like, lawyers, if our lawyers would let us i would tell you about this one but they won't so the, there is this book about elmir that irving did and it kind of discredited all of these art dealers and museum directors but it ultimately didn't really discredit elmir this <laughs> is like no i i mean yeah i'm a fake i'm a hoaxer i i paint stuff <laughs> that's that's interesting to me because Elmir never really lies about what he's doing, at least not in the film. Yeah, I mean, it's there. There are some places where they they argue that yeah, he probably at times said to these art dealers like, oh yeah, this is totally from here, and they mention a bit about his past that he made up, <laughs> <laughs> where maybe these paintings could have come from uh, if they happen to be real. Right, right. <laughs> So they get into Modigliani, 
who, you know, he, he was this painter who died very young, uh, but is very sought after. Very few existing paintings. So Elmir says, so if they're added to, well, <laughs> hey, why not? Yeah, but, what is it, Modigliani? Modigliani. Modigliani. You know, he could have done this. Totally. You don't know that he didn't. And Irving talks about this test that he did. He got Elmira to to draw three little Modigliani sketches, and he took them to a bunch of different art galleries. And some of them were like, oh, yeah, that's obviously uh, an expert one. Uh, you know, this is one of his great works. You can tell by this and this and, you know, certain pixels that I've seen. And <laughs> Right? <laughs> I can tell because of the pixels. It's definitely a Photoshop. Yeah, I've seen you a few know, in my day. I've seen a few in my day, and this one's definitely an art forgery. And, and yeah, he says some of them would say, oh, well, uh, you know, that's obviously a fake. I don't believe it for a second. And then others were like, oh, well, yeah, you can tell it's real because of this and this. And he's like, OK, after that, I lost my faith in the concept of expertise. And do you <laughs> think that that's what drew him to be like, maybe I do a hoax of my own? <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you're writing. It's not picking up. It's not taking off. But, yeah. hey, this guy you wrote about, um, he's doing pretty good for himself. Well, he's... honestly, he's not doing that great for himself. But the people who made money off him are doing great. And if you get in with your own contract on the ground floor. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was always a thing, wasn't it? Elmir never really made the millions. Elmir didn't have the greatest life. Like, he didn't own that house. He was uh, living there. An art dealer owned the house, and he was living there to get art. Uh, and uh, he sadly did kill himself two years after this. Oh. Uh, uh, never mentioned, it, obviously, because, you know, it happened after the film. But, yeah, I, I think uh, there there were, uh, they were uh, threatening to extradite him to France to go on trial for stuff or something. So, yeah, uh, kind, of, kind of sad because he seems like such a lovable little... <laughs> weasel guy <laughs> yeah he seems like a real nice guy who just yeah you know will tell you that his paintings were done by picasso <laughs> yeah or, or modigliani as or, he says i don't feel bad for modigliani i feel good for me <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> yeah hey life's for the living <laughs> <laughs> So he he does another one where he demonstrates a Matisse, how how he fakes it. And it's like the the thing with Matisse is you just have the hesitant brush strokes, and he he shows exactly how he mimics their work. And he's like, okay, I, I better burn this. You you've seen me draw this. I can't do anything with this. <laughs> <laughs> but one would argue that uh, such detailed forgery is in itself an art form, is it not? Absolutely. And it used to be. That, that's something he gets to a little bit later. But here he, he says, you know, regarding the painting burning, he's like, well, saying one nod from an expert and that piece of canvas would be worth a couple hundred thousand dollars. It's so Just ridiculous. Like right. And it really lays bare how absurd expertise is that that. Uh, the idea that any critic has any sort of uh, singular domination on a thing, like uh, criticism shouldn't be elite. <laughs> You're, yeah, it's like because you don't have to fool every single person with your art piece. You just got to fool the one the guy. Right He'll say it's good <laughs> and then it's good. Right. And I, I think film criticism wasn't quite 
was sort of an ivory tower thing at this point in time where you obviously did not have the blogosphere. I think Wells would really like the current state of internet film criticism that everyone can just have their own opinion on things. I think he'd be totally in favor of it. This is what he would have liked. This is a, this is a period that Wells would have th- thrived in. I think so. Man, if Orson Wells had the internet, Oh man, <laughs> the shit that would, the internet would be different. He would have been an all-time Twitter poster. To be fair, <laughs> he would have been like a top five. So he he has this Kipling verse, Rudyard Kipling, classic British poet laureate, about the first piece of art, uh, and you know the devil whispered from behind the leaves, "It's pretty, but is it art?" i better go take it to 57 different museums to find out right as well as goes on well how is it valued value depends on opinion opinion depends on the experts (laughs) yeah so so what is the value of art you know the value of art is how it makes us feel the the value of art is the art itself it should be intrinsic rather than extrinsic and he, he, you know, if a faker like Elmira makes fools of the experts, who's the expert? Who's the faker? Right? <laughs> yeah. You can't be an expert if you're getting fooled by the shit. So you're a fake expert, which yeah. means he's an expert fake. Like he a- is. He is the expert. Like he can, like he knows everything about art. He can mimic the way they paint. He can mimic the form of their brush strokes. He's much more of an expert than any of them. And he he said, look, no museum ever, ever once refused a painting I offered them. Not once. (laughs) I wonder about that. Yeah. But he could also be offering very selectively, too. I think that's probably likely. And, And also just the idea that he is creating them knowing that they want it. Like, he is making them... Uh, they're tailor-made they're uh he's now accepting commissions yeah please give generously to his patreon yeah elmir's patreon i i like this uh, bit better. elmir would have done good in this era too yeah elmir would have done so much better this is a, an era that would have been much more accepting of elmir he he would have been great in fan art so there, there's this cool bit where he's painting a portrait of michelangelo and we just see him doing like this is just an Elmir. This is I'm not doing it in the style of anyone. I'm painting Michelangelo. And, and he signs it. <laughs> yeah, he signs Orson Welles name on it, which is really fun. <laughs> and then later on, there's that bit where Orson Welles is drawing a painting as well. And then he signs it Elmir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, no, it's he, he does the Howard Hughes one. The, you know, right. the, he, he does his portrait of Howard Hughes with the clean Xboxes and the beard. And it's like, but Elmir. <laughs> oh my God. And that's, that's the Mr. Burns uh, from that episode. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so th- this is where he mentions that, yeah, a forgery did not used to be a thing that was like bad. It's just how you learned how to paint. Like that's how Michelangelo got his start. He did a bunch of paintings that copied other people so that he could develop his own style. That's, that's still what you do. Yeah. He's, Fucking Michelangelo, that, that's how you do it. And it's just uh, the, the whole expertise thing has thrown the system out of whack. 
It's like, well, but there's value if you do it really well. It's like, well, if you do it very well, like, well, yeah, who's to resist? If you're some poor, starving Hungarian immigrant, come on. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Can't sell your own paintings. It's very much the Wells experience when he's in Ireland. Mm-hmm. It, it, we'll get to. We will. <laughs> so they, they have this bit where there's the press conference with Howard Hughes, where he just talks through a voice box on a phone because he was really reclusive in his later years. And they're always asking, is that really his voice? How yeah. do we know? How do we know? It does There's sound no verification. Like I mean, from, from other times I've heard Howard Hughes's voice, it does certainly sound like him. But he's like, I've never heard of this Irving fella. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, Wells is pretty sure it's him because he used to know him. <laughs> right, because he's Orson Wells has lived an interesting life. Well, and also Howard Hughes lived this really interesting life. He was a film director and producer for a bunch of years. Oh. Like at the same time, Wells was active in Hollywood in the 40s. Oh, dang. Uh, I, I think he got Oscars. Uh, he, he did some great aerial warfare films. Oh, neat. So the, there's this story that Wells tells about the one that used to hang around that he knew from the old days, that there's this secret bungalow for Hughes for his secret police. <laughs> <laughs> and every day at 1.30 in the morning, someone would place a small package in the crotch of the tree just outside. And what was inside that package? A ham sandwich. <laughs> A ham sandwich. <laughs> you know, full, just uh, Orson Welles' face, uh, looking arch at the screen like, yep. sandwich <laughs> <laughs> so good so then we get a bit of the history of howard hughes that uh, he after hollywood and he just kind of got sick of all of it and the huac stuff that he just you know house on american activities and all the stuff with the spruce goose which you know was a disaster mm-hmm. that he went he he got his desert retreat of course uh, the desert retreated first because it's <laughs> vegas referring of course to las vegas yeah and this is interesting he says he bought out or chased out the mafia and took over the strip because he he basically just sort of ran the mafia out of vegas they ran uh, they ran vegas up until that point and he's like i'm just taking over i'm buying all of this strip I, I want my privacy and I have the money to just own all of this. Interesting. Because, I, yeah, I knew that the the mafia had owned Vegas and they don't anymore. I didn't know it was Howard Hughes that uh, did that. I, I think that this is maybe conflating a few things because I'm sure there's more to it than that. I know it, it was Bugsy Siegel who originally moved out and started the, the whole Vegas thing. And then he got fucking gunned down. Right. <laughs> uh, and then there's a whole lot of the casino stuff with uh, the the mob running it uh, that goes into, obviously, Scorsese's casino, where uh, it has De Niro as one of the main guys. And that that's all based on fact, too. And I, I feel like that goes longer than this. Like, he's doing it in the 70s, so he obviously didn't chase all of them out. Right, right. Uh, so... 
the the rumors have already started by this point. Like once he's in Vegas, the the rumors of him wandering around with clean Xboxes on his feet are already starting to build because like, you know, he's up here in this one apartment building and nobody ever sees him. So it's like, what's he doing up there? <laughs> what indeed? He's probably just uh, probably just got his headphones on and just vibing. That's what I would do. Well, apparently he had his own little mini movie theater and he watched a lot of uh, he watched a lot of his own movies from the 40s just over and over and over again. Like, it, it does sound like he did go a little crazy in his later days, just not quite as crazy as people claimed. Mm, OK, <laughs> although there's a line here that is never really delved into. They say he was only accessible to a tiny group of mystery Mormons. <laughs> I think that's a line that mystery Mormons <laughs> while it needs context, no context is going to satisfy the payoff True. that this, uh, that this dangling thread has set up. Yeah. It's such a good line just in and of itself. <laughs> it's so, like, I want to know more, but I don't. Yeah. I mean, the, just having the imagination of it is pretty fun. So Irving claimed to have gotten to Howard Hughes, but he just, sent him a signed copy of his Elmir book, Fake. He's like, hey, I think you might be interested in this. And then, you know, we started up a correspondence. It was just that simple. <laughs> Doesn't Wells, like, interject by saying this has never happened and no one has ever been able to do this? I don't think he says that, but, you know, he's like, sure, okay. And then uh, Irving says, you know, I, I have all of these writings which are in Hugh's hand. Uh, and they brought in handwriting experts, experts in handwriting, On handwriting. And they're like, yo, it's irrefutably real. That shit's been authenticated. Experts <laughs> say so. Yeah. <laughs> so again, more taking down of experts. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so, you know, handwriting expertise is, you know, notoriously fake bullshit. You know, that, that's one of the big things in the Zodiac case. Oh, OK. Yeah where uh, the, the handwriting expert kept disqualifying all of the suspects. Like, I don't know if we should disqualify them on those grounds. Yeah, sure. He was in the exact same place at the exact same time. And there's the victim's blood on his hands, but the writing doesn't match. So it can't be him. not the right handing. I'm an expert. <laughs> <laughs> so Ir Irving t tells the thing about the three Elmir sketches and going to the Museum of Modern Art, and they authenticated them. And his story kind of stops there, but then they're like, so what happened to those three <laughs> sketches, huh? Hmm. And and Elmir, they, they talk to Elmir about it, and he's like, well, Irving says that he destroyed them. And he's like, knowing him, knowing what I know of this guy, I think he might have those stashed away for a rainy day somewhere, or maybe he sold them and made a little bit of money on them. I don't think he's going to get rid of them. I know a crook when I see one. I'm a crook. <laughs> <laughs> did you burn them, Irving? Oh, I definitely burned oh, them. You definitely did. Had to destroy them. You know, it was only for a test. <laughs> we both believe that you burned those paintings. Uh, really cold takedown that they're like, you know, they have that bit where they're, showing Elmir casting doubt on Irving's uh, character. And then Irving is like, eh, his way of life, it allowed him no personal vision. He's like, ouch, dude. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, he's painting as lots of other painters, but 
you know, he, he's creating masterpieces in their like in their styles. That's kind of special. Authenticated yeah. masterpieces. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that takes that takes its own unique kind of talent. So Wells rephrases the Kipling thing. He says it's pretty, but is it rare? Mm. No, lots of oysters, only a few pearls. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> this is the part that I absolutely love, where he's just holding court at this French bistro. <laughs> the, the whole documentary so far has just had the uh, had the feel like he's just at a dinner table telling this whole story to his friends. And here he is literally doing that. Yeah, finally, they're just all gathered around the table. You got Francois, you got, uh, I think, uh, I think it's maybe Edith Irving who's there at the table as well. Could be. I think Oya's there. I believe Oya's there. Uh, And it's this incredible bistro with actual Coteau paintings all over the walls and Vertish. And he spills his wine. Twice, yes. a couple times, you know, just I, showily, I think. I think so. Uh, uh, th- this is where he says that great line: "Awful lot of forgery is committed these days in the kitchen." <laughs> As someone who has worked in the kitchen, yeah, yes, absolutely. I, you know, 100%. I haven't worked in real food service, but I worked at McDonald's for a while. Even there, uh, the restaurant I worked at—I'm not going to say which one. Uh, we ran out of spinach. So one of the waitresses decided to use lettuce instead and hope the customer Ugh. wouldn't notice. Not the same. The customer noticed immediately. Yeah, very, very different. <laughs> um, so a lot of forgery happens. Oh, certainly. I didn't have eggs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so no, I definitely, uh, I definitely cooked this on a grill that has not touched any meat. Hundred percent. No, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it's absolutely fine. Uh, I I could tell some hair curling stories about McDonald's, which I won't right now. But <laughs> <laughs> so Vertish, who this other guy who Wells know, uh, obviously he knew Cateau because Cateau's a filmmaker and was you know a pretty important French filmmaker through that era, and Wells was spending lots of time there. But Vertish, another Hungarian. And there's this thing about Hungarian pride in crookedness. <laughs> <laughs> and it, he, he says, okay, Vertish told me right here at this table, as a charlatan, I painted fake masterpieces. And that I began as Lautrec. I, I really love the little... It, 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 Vertish's story is exactly the same as Elmira's story. <laughs> They're all kind of the same story, aren't they? Yeah. So El- Elmer says, like, I tried to sell my paintings of, you know, my own work. And I, you know, this titled English woman. I'm like, oh, titled English woman. Some Dutch duchess or something, right? Yep. And he's like, just trying to sell his own paintings and just totally uninterested. And he's like, where did you get that Picasso? Or no, this is Verdish's story, I think. Yeah. I think like, so. where did you get that Picasso? And he's like, or no, no, the, the Picasso one is Elmir and Vertish was Lautrec. Because he's a, like, Vertish is like, there's a nice little Lautrec. And he's like, it's a nice little Vertish. <laughs> he's like, I'll take the Lautrec. <laughs> All right, here you like, go. Yeah, what can I say? I'm starving. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, 
and uh, they they get into the just the Hungarian uh, crookedness thing. It's like he he told me he had the Hungarian cookbook. Mm. First recipe says, first steal an egg. <laughs> <laughs> and Elmir says, to be Hungarian is not a nationality; it's a profession. <laughs> Uh, and it's funny that he's like, yeah, every Hungarian I've ever known wants you to believe that they're the most crooked person on earth, but <laughs> they're not more crooked than anyone else. They're just more proud of it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And what basically they said all of this up about Hungarians is like, look, the real crooks are the art dealers, right? And everyone's like, yeah, I mean, I, I think that seems to be the case. <laughs> yeah. Oh, art dealers for sure. For sure. And he's like, okay, who's a more trustworthy witness? We've got this art dealer over here who's making mad bank off selling these paintings from this poor man who lives in someone else's house. <laughs> who's more trustworthy? Uh, do you want to believe Elmir or do you want to believe this art critic? I'm like, well... <laughs> I really think Elmir should have set up a bit of a better deal for himself. I just don't think it was possible, given that he was running from the law a lot of the well, time. Yeah, yeah. You know, him being an illegal person is sort of a problem in the 50s. He was gay and he was not allowed to be, legally. Right, right, that that whole thing. Yeah. So Elmir insists, look, I never sold to private collectors. I was never representing my works as being something else to just individuals. I only sold to big art dealers. Although I think what actually brought him down is he sold, like, 66 paintings to this one dude hmm. <laughs> uh i th that's i i was reading about the the various things and that that's what it sounded like <laughs> but i don't know again maybe maybe not maybe yeah truth or fiction so reichenbach he was one of the guys who was buying his paintings uh, francois reichenbach who's always hanging out in the film yeah and he's like i heard about elmir because he was selling a bunch of Matisse and Modigliani's as this Hungarian refugee that they were like supposedly smuggled out during World War II uh, that, you know, he had come from this concentration camp and uh, his parents had been really wealthy, you know, so they had all these paintings that they kind of smuggled out. Right, right. So that's his his background fictional story. It's the Tommy Wiseau uh, story, you know, of his background, right? <laughs> Oh, God, what was the story of why he's rich again? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. There's a lot of different ones. He never says anything really accurate. I think he just owns some... He, he got some important real estate at, you know, at a key moment in time. and uh, There was a clothing company. Clothing, selling jeans. I don't know. There's all sorts yeah. of weird stuff there. So Irving says that someone told him so just some guy told me that he knew Elmir uh, and he was just this lower middle class guy and he knew him in a concentration camp oh and, sure he's like well you know it, again it's just say so but i kind of do believe that Elmir is maybe just some regular dude who just knew how to uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know he he knew how to 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 Make his dreams real in a way. <laughs> <laughs> Just write fan fiction about himself and then have it become canon. Right. And th that's sort of how he was living his life. And Francois is like, look, I, I can't get mad at him. Uh, I sold the paintings for double what I paid for them. 
and then he, he has this great thing about like and then Elmira's like, huh, well, I've got a whole bunch more. I don't know if you're interested. And it's like, so I got a little suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where it's the, the thing that you were saying, where he's like, oh, you know, something that I'd really like if you happen to have it, uh, a soutine by Modigliani. Right, right. This this girl that he always painted. I, I think it's not a girl. I think it's a guy who's just oh. a friend of Modigliani's. But he's like, lo and behold, a couple hours later. Francois, you are a genius. <laughs> How did you know I had one? <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I found this one just I, I, now, two hours after you asked me for it. It's like, ah, oh, how did you know? And again, he, he's not really mad about it, but he's and then he tried to reimburse me for the forgeries. Uh, and, you know, and. He he reimbursed you. He's like, he's like, yeah. I mean, I don't care that much because I, I had made double the amount I paid for them by reselling them, so it really right. wasn't a big deal to me. But then, of course, the check bounced, so it was a fake check for <laughs> a fake painting. For... <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, of course, we we all should have seen that coming. <laughs> and Wells is like, look, it is a complete fact that tons of art dealers have made gigantic amounts of money from selling Elmir paintings. So it's like, look, either the paintings are great or the dealers are fucking terrible. <laughs> like, it's got to be one or the other. Could be both. It could be a bit of both. But yeah, it, it, they, it cannot be exclusive, you know? <laughs> the, the paintings have to either be incredibly impressive forgeries or these dealers are just fleecing people intentionally i mean my money's on the dealer fleecing people intentionally i think it could also be great i mean it it does seem like if to this day a lot of them are probably still hanging in these important galleries and considered real works by major artists i'd say they're probably kind of great there's one a leonardo da vinci one a famous (laughs) one i won't tell you what it is though tell you no no you can't hear (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not not even going to hint at which one it is nope, famous just, da vinci there's just one out there <laughs> so they're like elmir himself has made really very little off of it you know yeah. th- this great house he has it's just borrowed from an art dealer he's just living there on someone else's dime uh he, he's just on the run <clears throat> and he's in ibiza because going to jail in ibiza would be better than other places he figures yeah no, that that's probably, probably right. just a, a little bit kinder. <laughs> a little so that, bit. Yeah. So Wells goes into his background, finally. He, how he started out as a painter as well in Ireland, you know, at, at the age of 16, just doing a summer uh, uh, trying to be a painter. This story I did not expect. I thought he had, you know, the movie star background because he's a movie star. <laughs> right. But like. You know, he just sort of arrived fully formed. He was this real brash, up-and-coming guy. He started in theater in, uh, well, obviously here. So first, there, he, he had to give away all of his paintings and supplies to various farmers for food over the, the course of the summer. He just, he, he couldn't do anything with them. <laughs> yeah, he, he couldn't he couldn't make his money back from all the supplies he bought. Yeah, he just had to give it all away over time. You know, he he did the paintings, but they never made it home with him because he had to give them to people so that he could eat. And, and then he, he ended slept up under the wagon. Yeah, 
And so he ultimately ends up in Dublin and he just claims to be this New York Broadway star. So they're like, all right, sure. You, you can be a, a star actor. And it's like, I began at the top. I've been working my way down ever since. <laughs> Classic but, Wells. <laughs> <laughs> but if he convinces the auditioners that he was a New York Broadway star when he wasn't, doesn't that just prove his acting ability? Exactly. It proves he's a star. You know, if he comes in with the energy of a star and is like, I'm a big Broadway star, cast me as the lead. And they do it. And it's like, yeah, he fucking did it. He yeah. has the attitude to do it. Yep. So then he got into radio, where obviously he did the War of the Worlds broadcast, where people literally took to the hills in terror. <laughs> yeah, I love how he rationalizes that they believed it when it was on the radio, because if they were seeing videos, they would realize how silly the whole thing looks. Right. If it were a movie, everyone would have been like, that's cornball. But come on. I don't believe that for a second. But played as real and with you know serious people talking about it on the radio as if it's a real thing happening it's like yeah people are ready to be convinced and people are always ready to be convinced mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that hasn't changed no i'd say that that has sadly increased oh oh yeah so he mentions how there is someone in South America who tried to copy the same broadcast and they went to prison. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I was lucky. He's like, I shouldn't complain. I didn't go to jail. I went to <laughs> Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't go to jail. I went crazy. Then I went to hell. Hollywood. <laughs> oh, Hollywood. <laughs> so Wells and this guy Richard Wilson and Joseph Cotton, they're all like, so the original concept for Citizen Kane, we were going to do Hughes. Hughes was the guy we were originally had in mind uh, for you know our, our, our original treatment of it. But as we were working it up, it's just Hughes' life is too unbelievable. So we had to go <laughs> for a more realistic guy and settled on Hearst. <laughs> I love the, the, the slight bitterness of the guy who was going to play Howard Hughes. Cotton, like, Joseph Cotton. Wonder what that movie would have been like. Yeah, and I, we sort of do get to see a glimpse of what that movie would have been like, which is one of my favorite things in this. It's like, hey, let's see the alternate universe Hughes Kane, where we we get that classic news on the March bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, Joseph Cotton, of course, who we we also covered on Shadow of a Doubt. Oh, that was him. That was him as the main guy. Oh, as cool. the uncle. So, yeah, the, the newsreel sequence, the news on the march, uh, Hughes's transcontinental flights, these huge ticker tape parades, uh, and then testifying on the House Un-American Activities Committee. Right. <laughs> uh, he invented the Spruce Goose, which is the huge fucking wooden plane that only flew for about seven minutes. So I had heard about the spruce goose, but never heard the details of it. I didn't realize it was actually made out of wood. Yeah, just this gigantic wooden plane. So fucking huge. Too heavy to fly. Sounds like something Elon would come up with. Yeah, it is just this huge debacle. And that's kind of ultimately, I think that's why he ended up being taken in front of HUAC is for defrauding the American people by because he had a defense contract. He, he was making this for the war. Oh, <laughs> this wasn't this wasn't just a vanity project. It was a warplane. 
Oh, yeah, you fucked with Lockheed Martin? Mm. Yeah, it, it it did not go great for that. that. That's sort of what ran him out of uh, all society. But his most important invention, of course, is the bra. I didn't know that was him. <laughs> it, it was made for a movie because people were upset with how uh, I, I can't remember who it was. Uh, I think it's Jane Russell. Like her breasts were too big and it was upsetting all the sensors like, OK, I got to do something to contain them. <laughs> For I believe it was the outlaw, yeah. <laughs> and he he gets into this thing like, so what is the thing about uh, about Hughes? He seems to be a loser. And <laughs> they're like, I I knew an actress who knew him at the time, and she sort of said that that was what his charm was that he was a loser, and he he sort of knew it and <laughs> could <laughs> roll with it in these ways. He's like, is he winning now in his germ-free, air-conditioned solitude? <laughs> As we zoom in on a hotel balcony that almost surely is not one where Hughes is. I think it actually is supposed to be the area that he lives in. He just owns that top floor. Oh, okay. So that just that that hotel is where he lives. It's just he owns the entire top floor. And I think gotcha. he, he owns the whole building, but, you know, the top floor well, is what he yeah. occupies. Yeah. Yeah. Is so, he still alive? Hughes, no. Okay, Hughes died quite a while ago. All right. Yeah. I, I think that's why, you know, uh, Scorsese could do The Aviator in the 2000s. Like, well, he's not going to come after us now, whatever we <laughs> say about it. So they, they say, like, there are people who theorize that Irving himself was hoaxed by someone else pretending to be Hughes, which, of course, was completely false. Uh, <laughs> Irving did it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds a little like, well, I was fooled too, you guys. Don't blame me. But yeah, Irving completely owned up to it. He was like, no, no, I, I fucking did it. Yeah, no, it, it was a hoax. I was in Ibiza working with all these artists because they were doing the forgeries for me for these uh, <laughs> all these writings. I admit it. <laughs> And th that's one of the other theories that they float because his book hadn't come out yet about the hoax. They're like, maybe was that why he was hanging around with Elmir? That maybe Elmir was forging the writings of Hughes. But I think it was just a variety of artists that he knew in Ibiza. Probably. And they talk about how Hughes always did use doubles. Like he used body doubles for appearances. So maybe now a double is making use of Hughes. Honestly, um, if you if you've been a body double and the person you're doubling has gone into recluse, you could have some fun. You could really do some fun stuff with that. But then they're like, no, but Irving confessed and he's going to write a book about the hoax he created. It's going to be called The Book About the Book, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, ended up just being called The Hoax. <laughs> if I did it. Yeah. And then Elmir has this monologue about how traveling is so wonderful, just the, the joy of traveling from place to place. And because Irving's like, why? Yeah, because the FBI and the police of four different states were on his tail. <laughs> <laughs> uh, traveling is wonderful. Always looking at the stars, looking at the grass, looking over your shoulder, yeah. looking over your shoulder again. Yeah, just just to be safe. And he did end up getting arrested in Ibiza, where he was convicted of homosexuality, uh, not of art forgery. It was not uh, mentioned in the movie. That's so 
Yeah. <laughs> That's not a crime. No, it's, it's kind of crazy. So Oya asks the question, if there weren't any experts, would there be any fakers? Well, that's that's interesting because if there's no experts, you're not necessarily going to need to try to pass off your art as the real thing. Right, because the, the value of it is the art rather than uh, the price tag of the art. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they talk about Picasso. We, we start to layer in a bit of stuff about Picasso because uh, he's going to be really important in the last third of the movie. Or not. <laughs> a little bit. His name, his name gets dropped. He's a very important figure in this last bit. So <laughs> Yes. <laughs> they, they have his thing about his idea of fakes, where this guy's bringing him all these, and he's like, no, that's a fake. That's a fake. No, that one's a fake, too. And the guy brings him one that's like, Picasso, I saw you paint this one personally. I watched you paint it with your own hand. He's like, I can paint false Picassos as well as anybody. <laughs> 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 and Irving's like, look, a trial of Elmir for forgery is literally impossible. Because, look, who's who are you going to get for witnesses? You, you got to have someone who watched him paint it and then watched it be sold. It's literally not a possible thing to do. And also, all of these art experts would be completely discredited. So, they, it, you know, it's not in anyone's best interest to prosecute him for the forgery. I like the part where they say, and you have to have two different people who saw him sign the painting. And yeah. It, it, and he's like, like, I never, I never signed him. <laughs> there is a long, long, long pause. The longest pause in the whole movie. Just Irving said, like, mm, I don't know about that. And it's just <laughs> the two of them, a, a, an assembly of different silences that they had of them. Just like, mm. Just them making eyes, but like obviously not even in the same room or in the same yeah. time period. So good. <laughs> like, and Irving's finally like, well, he, no, he signed every one of them. He, he signed some of them. And then there's this beautiful rumination that Wells has about Chartres, this uh, this cathedral, this unsigned work to the glory of God and the dignity of man. Right. Uh, and, and he, sorry, do you have? Yeah, no, I, I just think it was interesting that he mentioned that it's unsigned, but it's still considered art. So if it's unsigned, how do we know if it's a fake cathedral? Well, it, it's more just we there. There is nothing like it, it is this just yeah, this beautiful architectural work, and it needs no signature because we just know its worth because of uh, the beauty of it and just sort of the glory and dignity of it. Yeah, yeah, like, like, sorry, my point was that a fake cathedral isn't a thing. Right, and he, it's sort of an interesting point that because of expertise, he's like, look, all that's left now is man, naked, poor forked radish. <laughs> Just the, that everything is a universe which is disposable. That, you know, and nothing is real. Uh, we we kind of have to rely on an expert to tell us what reality is. And like, how is that better than just appreciating art as art? <laughs> this, is this anonymous glory of all things, this rich stone forest, this epic chant, this gaiety, this grand choiring shout of affirmation. 
to testify what we had in us to accomplish. I, I, I love this bit. Like, it, 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 I find this a really moving section where he just sort of talks about the beauty of art for the sake of art without any sort of uh, necessary value for it. You know, work that was just created for the sake of creating it. Yeah, that's that's how art started, and that's how art should be, in my opinion. Absolutely. And he sort of ties it in with, you know, this is his final film, and he sort of knows that he is nearing the end of his career, and he's talking about the inevitability of death and decay of all things. And for real and fake alike, that the the reality and the fake, they're, they are equalized in this way that like what does it matter you know our songs will all be silenced but what of it go on singing dang (laughs) and and uh, most importantly maybe a man's name doesn't matter all that much that you know it's it's not about the signature on it it's about the the art that's produced Hmm. so then we are at one minute or one hour eight minutes and 32 seconds and he's like now at last we come to Oya. <laughs> and he really leans on it. He's like, for this true story. <laughs> <laughs> not fake, not like, fiction. Let's let's hear a bit about Oya's grandfather. And like, nah, nah, let's hold on to that for a second. You know, we, we don't need to get into Oya's grandfather just yet. <laughs> let's not muddy the waters. It's already rich enough. Yeah. So Picasso, we've been talking a bit about him. He's the wealthiest painter in 6,000 years. And I think that is true. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, he he just most painters are not successful in their own lifetimes. Uh, people make money off of them after they die. That's sort of the painter's lot. <laughs> that doesn't sound fun. I, I not great. No. But Picasso was able to monetize it. He made it sort of a fact. He made himself a factory with this flowing movement of the hand that he could very quickly do a Picasso, and you know it's distinctly a Picasso. Mm-hmm. So we cut to Toussaint and Oya on holidays. <laughs> <laughs> and Picasso just doing his paintings, you know, he happens to be in a retreat. And uh, Oya with her was a Norwegian trumpet player or trombone playing boyfriend, Olaf. Oh, that was supposed to be her boyfriend? <laughs> I think he's supposed to be like her beau. Uh, and, you know, he's practicing trombone and she's walking back and forth from the beach all day, all day, just wearing different sexy clothes every time, all day, every day. Well, going back to change, coming back in a different outfit. And it's basically the girl watching montage from the beginning again, but it's mostly Picasso. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just or rather pho- eyes and blinds. <laughs> yeah. Photographs of Picasso <laughs> with blinds in front of him. Which is a really fun image, the way that just yeah. the, the blinds <laughs> opening with the, just those very distinct eyes staring out between them. Yeah, like wide eyes, like, holy shit. So they, they say Picasso hires Oya. That, you know, he hired her as a model and he painted 22 portraits. And Oya placed a price on the sunshine. They made a deal, <laughs> yes. Uh, where... She gets to keep every one of the canvases. 
But the the agreement, of course, is that she's not allowed to sell them or profit from them. She can't uh, have exhibitions of them. They're just hers to have, and that's it. Mm. And he has this weird little bit about Paris in August. This is, it happens every year. <laughs> everything shuts down. You could uh, come in, and if an invasion were to come in, they, they could... Uh, I, I can't remember. It was like they they could just have it for a song or something. They could like, invade by telephone. By telephone, if they could find someone who would answer. <laughs> right. Just August, Paris. Nobody has the mood to do any bullshit. So it's just like, but there's this big Picasso ex- exhibition, and Picasso's reading the paper, and he's like, thrown into a rage, incandescent. <laughs> <laughs> a unique Picasso rage, apparently. Right. They, they said that he goes down to this exhibition looking from painting to painting, recognizing none of them. <laughs> and just these hugely critically acclaimed portraits. They're like, this is a whole new era of Picasso. That It's just this beautiful new mode. And so he goes to see Oya and her grandfather who is supposedly this secret dying forger, the da Vinci of art forgers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Wells go, Wells says, this is true, you know. <laughs> <laughs> of course. This is like, yeah, Remember, uh, he did make a promise at the beginning of the movie. Exactly. A promise and, was made. And he's talking about, look, there's, and this is sort of this incredible once in a lifetime meeting of the world's best and least known geniuses. You know, Picasso is the most known genius. He mm-hmm. is so well known. He's incredibly famous. He is an uncommonly wealthy painter. And then you've got this guy who is the, the greatest art forger of all time. And nobody has ever heard of him because none of his paintings are known to be his own. Yep. And, and now it's like, he's... Well, where are those original 22? <laughs> and he's like, I burned them all. And, you know, it's the idea of being on the deathbed of a ghost. Just <laughs> galleries around the world haunted by my works. <laughs> I, I love the whole, just the, the concept. It's, it's sort of them doing this sort of one-act play about the concept of what they've looked at as nonfiction for the course of the movie. It's this little playlet about... Uh, you know, the, the most extreme examples of this, that to have Picasso meeting an even greater art forger than Elmire, who has, you know, paintings in every important gallery all around the world. And we have Wells and Oya just sort of throwing out these mad figures back and forth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is interesting because we have Wells playing uh, the grandfather, I believe, and Oya right. plays Picasso. Yeah, and her playing Picasso, angrily yelling at him. He's like, well, why don't you confess? He says, confess to what? Committing masterpieces? <laughs> <laughs> but just the, the beautiful final line of it that kind of, uh, it, it sort of sums up the whole movie. is like, I must believe that art itself is real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does not need to be authenticated. You know, we look at art and we should know ourselves, the value of the art within ourselves. Art is meant for people to 
uh, view and enjoy. <laughs> it's, it's it's subjective. It's not objective. Yeah. There's no checklist of inspections that you have to that you can go through. So they're at an hour and twenty six, and he's like, "Okay, confession time. <laughs> Look, I, I I told you." That at the beginning of the film, that for the next hour I was going to do it. But look, that hour has been up for 17 minutes, and in that time I've been lying my ass off. <laughs> 17 minutes ago we started talking about this stuff. Yeah, none of that's true. We were just playing with you, okay? Look, her name's Oya, but her grandfather—did uh, he paint? He never painted. No, not not once ever. And the 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 point being that look, reality is boring and inevitable. <laughs> You know, the inevitability of death is uh, what makes reality uninteresting. Uh, artists are professional liars. So, you know, what's wrong with lying? <laughs> yeah, there you go. So the, mean, the final. So is acting, really. Well, yeah, exactly. And just all art. Uh, art, art is sort of a. Uh, uh, based on replicating reality in various different ways, but it's all. Uh, uh, interpretational you know everyone is doing a performance mm -hmm. uh, and and the final line from Elmir it's art is a lie that makes us realize the truth mm, that is and that that was profound because a lot like a lot of the time fiction does make me look into the reality behind like the true story behind it when it's kind of right. loosely based on one or or even look into like is this thing even possible? And then I learned some stuff that way. Right. And, and just the, that, you know, we, we look at a depiction of uh, a sort of false depiction of reality to sort of better understand the reality of a thing. Like uh, the, this Picasso versus Oya's fictional uh, super forger grandfather. It's sort of a summation of everything we've talked about before that it's like, ultimately this guy has all of these great works in all of these galleries and if he were to be revealed as the painter of them, would they be torn down and destroyed? And like, what is like, what value is there in that? Then we lose these masterpieces. Yeah, exactly. Like if he were to be revealed, we just have to start putting his name on the thing and leave it up, up where they are. Yeah, exactly. In theory. But, but that what would also really happened. Right. And that, that discredits art experts. So then it's like, well, what makes this person an expert? And ultimately, this film is just a, a takedown of art experts, honestly, in, in a very major way. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And, and sort of just experts as as critics and stuff. He's not really taking aim at film critics. He clearly is not someone who read the reviews and was all that bothered by them. Is it not his sort of thing? <laughs> but yeah it's it's him just sort of looking like man what is the value of uh, an expert and like maybe we should just enjoy art and allow ourselves to personally enjoy it and interpret it uh and i i feel like podcasting and blogging you know th this is sort of the the way wells wants art to be consumed oh my god an orson wells podcast would be amazing <laughs> if Orson Welles had his own podcast, I could listen to that guy talk forever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that is the end of F4 Fake. Uh, just one of my all-time favorites. It, it's such a mind trip. You know, it, it it really makes you think about the value of art and 
the lack of value in art experts. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole well, it, it's it kind of uh, brings us back to that Santo movie that we watched. Actually, yes. how the guy wanted to convince the expert so badly that he invented a magical photocopier that was powered by girl cancer. Right. Where yeah, that, I forgot that that had that whole art forgery storyline in it that was well, the, the art baffling. forgery was the point the the human experimentation was secondary it was all about the art yeah totally and then you know you finally find out at the end that there was all this cancer experimentation like why <laughs> and all <laughs> to of make that good art yeah all of that is to fool experts which i don't know i think that movie came out after this movie it, it feels like it sort of working in the same thing that it's like well what's the value of that why does that matter <laughs> i don't think elmir took out uh took out tumors from people though no i i think elmir was not a secret nazi or anything he just <laughs> seemed like a, a guy who could really paint a painting and could really mimic someone's work and do someone's style but that wasn't valued in the era that he was living in. So it just kind of didn't work out for him. Mm -hmm. I definitely feel really bad for Elmir at the end of this movie, especially just knowing that he committed suicide a couple years later. Yeah. I don't feel too bad for Clifford Irving. I don't feel too bad for Hughes. (laughs) (laughs) Cause they got rich. Yeah. You know, it worked out for them. Uh, Elmir was just sort of used by others. Uh, but I, I love this movie. I, I love just seeing this window into Wells himself and how he looks at art and how he approaches his own art. Because it's we're watching a movie being constructed in real time when we're watching this movie. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um, just because this really is like a window into his own mind. Mm-hmm. Even though it's a, the subject of the documentary is somebody completely different. There's enough of him in it. Yeah, and just all of these people, it's so interesting how each of them have a very similar origin story as an artist. Even though the, he works in a different field of art than them, that they both kind of grew up the same way. Yeah, I tried drawing furry porn, but nobody liked it. So I started <laughs> drawing uh, Sonic the Hedgehog OCs and made a lot of money doing porn of them. <laughs> yeah, um, you, you just got to like know my your original audience. work. Yeah. They're they're not into the, they're not into that. It's it's such a fascinating work, and I do feel like it really resonates. And it sort of invented the essay film. Basically, I don't think they really did this sort of thing before. And now, this is like how documentaries are made now. This totally <laughs> uh, was not at all how this was like an experimental film in its day. Oh really? Because this is a very standard documentary format. Um, totally. A, yeah, uh, a little bit more of his own personality going into it than most documenters do, but otherwise, well, like it's set up the that, same. That most documentarians uh, admit to. Mm. I think it's always there, and I think Wells is just much more honest about it. Because like when he's lying, he's going to be like, okay, I'll pull the rug out. I was lying. I was just messing with you there. But all <laughs> the other stuff, this is true as I know it to be. Well, fair enough. Yeah. I, I think it's uh, just such a fun and interesting piece. And yeah, it, it, there there are things in it that I find really moving in the middle of stuff being very funny and just kind of irreverent and just moving along at this really fast clip. 
yeah, there's some really interesting stuff uh, to be said, and it's kind of made me think of my own art, or I guess my writing, uh, differently. Yeah, but you know, it, it's it's hard to be marketable. <laughs> it's it's hard <laughs> yeah. to uh, make yourself seen, especially like we're a much more accelerated society. You you can get your art seen, but you can't necessarily monetize it unless you uh, really have a, a, a certain connections and uh, certain ways to do it. Mm-hmm. So like any, please. Like I, I just wrote stranger things fiction. What stranger. It's only been out for a week and nobody cares about stranger things fiction anymore. Yeah, no. Yeah, oh, fanfic. now I got to write. Although fanfic is just a huge world these days. Oh yeah, that's true. I, I used to get into it like way back in the day, but oh my God, it's, it's insane. Yeah, it's it's a gigantic community of its own now. So, you know, you can be famous there, but it doesn't necessarily translate to money or fame unless you uh, use your forgery of uh, a Twilight book to turn it into a popular S&M book series. Literally the one I was thinking of. <laughs> exactly. So, any last thoughts on F for Fake before we move on to our second part? Yeah, I didn't introduce myself properly. I'm Shanna. I didn't True. even say like a, plun, a pun this time. I just did a bad Orson Welles impression. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Uh, uh, this is true, you know. <laughs> and if I don't put my signature on it, you don't know it's me. It could be somebody else pretending to be me. Someone yeah. would definitely want to do that. Yeah, you could could be uh, that, that cathedral shot show, uh, just, you know, hanging out on the podcast. Could be. <laughs> All right, well. On to part two. And we're back for part two, where we're talking about The Mephisto Waltz, directed by Paul Wendkos from 1971. This is also a movie about fakers in a way. It is. Uh, Not (laughs) fake Satanists. No, no, real Satanists. Fake, uh, Fake Alan Alda. Sort of, yeah. I mean, it's sort of. I, as it we is him, of course. Yeah, as, as we discussed at the end of last week, it's a get out scenario. It is. Well, it, it is so get out that I yeah. even have I have written in my notes. She got get outed. Yeah, I mean, it. it I, I would say that it is most likely one of the primary texts for Get Out. One of the inspirations for it. You know, I, I've seen variations on this story. In other versions as well, there's one called, I think, The Immortalizer, which is a pretty ridiculous one from the 80s or maybe early 90s. But this one seems like probably a direct influence because it has a bit more of that upscale feel, even though it's sort of TV movie adjacent at times. A little bit, yeah. Um, It's not about racism. Uh, It is kind of about... A little bit class. of class. Class. Uh, it does kind of have a bit of an eyes wide shut feel to it as yeah. well. Which, which as again, our, you know, that's a movie about class. Mm-hmm. As our main guy, Alan Alda, in the first 20 minutes of the movie, is completely in over his head in this high society, mm-hmm. but also completely ignoring his wife, who is rightfully uncomfortable by all of it. Right. And there's also an eyes wide shut mask party at one point which is completely bizarre and has the dog wearing a human mask which is quite upsetting looking but it looks really bad because the mask looks really I, I don't mean bad as in yeah no it's upsetting 
it, it's uncanny. It's, it's really good uncanny valley because yeah, I thought it was I a did, nightmare sequence at first. Yeah, I didn't realize it was supposed to be a mask like in yeah. the movie. I thought it was. Yeah, it's like, oh, we're in some sort of weird Satan nightmare where there's a dog with a human head. And like, no, this is just a party. Creepy. <laughs> yeah. And, and of course, that that dog is the gaslighting dog. Yeah, uh, that, the evil devil dog. The evil devil dog. So an alternate title for this movie could be Every Single Person Gaslights Paula. Everyone's a devil. Uh, the Satanists all the way down. People were really concerned that there were a whole lot of Satanists in government and uh, positions of authority in America. It's not. It's all evangelical Christians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they have their stonecutter thing, their secret societies, but it's not Satan stuff. No, uh, it's it's more like uh, frat stuff. Uh, it's, it's that kind of Greek societies. You, you, you oh get your gosh. secret handshakes and shit. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and like your masks and your your leader and your hazing oh yeah exactly like like that guy was just trying to haze tom cruise and tom cruise just wasn't having it that's yeah, why he got kicked out i think yeah it's he, he was not it. into the hazing i i mean i i think they probably getting back to that movie i i do still think that to an extent that's why he was there is it's fun for them to have an outsider into uh, <laughs> menace and you know bring some spice to the proceedings mm-hmm. <laughs> uh the outsider was brought into the party for a completely different re- reason here though right well here they're seducing him they they want <laughs> that alan aldabad that young alan aldabad Th- this is like circa the first season of mash i think Maybe even before. No, this is the year before MASH. Oh, wow. The, the TV series, anyway. He was yeah, not yeah. in the movie. Right. Yeah, they, they want his hands and his bones. Yeah, yeah. gotta get those hands, man. Uh, Kurt Jurgens, who is just one of the great movie bad guys. He's just always a bad guy. That's uh, that's the old man? Yeah, yeah, Duncan Eli. <laughs> Duncan Eli. Uh, barely in the film because of how it works, but the character is always present. Yeah, pretty significant, and and he's just like a classic bad guy. Like, he was a Bond villain later on. Uh, oh, he looks like one. Yeah, he's he, he was the, the Bond villain in The Spy Who Loved Me. I don't know if I've seen that one. We'll add that to the list of movies we're discussing that I haven't seen in this episode. <laughs> I, I talked about this one a little while back because I rewatched all the Roger Moore ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got the same plot as Moonraker, except it's underwater instead of in space. Right, right. I will build a society underwater and we will all have amazing hands. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I think he was also... The, the, what I always think of is Lifeboat, the uh, uh, Alfred Hitchcock movie. I believe it was him in that. You'll never where... guess if I've seen that or not. <laughs> I, I would say you definitely have, because we, we've talked about how you've not really seen any, uh, or previously had never seen any Hitchcock. Yeah, the the only ones I've seen are ones that we've done for the show or that you, or I, you and I have watched together. Right. I think I'm misremembering. I don't think it is him in Lifeboat, come to think of it. Anyway, Kurt Jurgens. I mean, just a you know, great bad guy. He he radiates evil and menace every second he's on the screen. <laughs> there are blood on the piano keys. The experts don't know this. 
but they yeah. should. It, and we bow down to them. So, like, he's sort of the Stephen Root in this. Uh, for, he, yes. Because, you know, it, in Get Out, of course, Stephen Root is the guy who wants uh, the, the body because he wants his eyes because he's gone blind. Yeah, and the photographer, um, our main guy from Get Out, has great attention to detail. And yeah. our blind Stephen Root know this, knows this because the butler described it to him real good. Mm-hmm. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. This, you know, it's actually quite a bit more straightforward. He is a virtuoso pianist, and he knows this guy is a talented but materially unsuccessful pianist. He's like the best case scenario for our uh, guy from last week in in Black Christmas. Oh, um, uh, what's it, Peter? If he Peter. had successfully dropped out of school. Um, and I guess broken married up with that girl. No, he would have broken up with that girl yeah, and married someone to. who wanted a girl, a uh, kid. Yeah, because they they do have the kid, unless he somehow convinced her to have the kid. Uh, but th- mm. this does not seem like that kind of relationship. They they both mm. seem to be. She's more into the kid than he is. Oh he, well, we don't really see how into the kid he is actually. Yeah, um, and I mean that's kind of the point. We it, it does not seem like there is any point at which he is interested in having this child, whereas uh, the wife is concerned about her at times personally. Uh, oh yeah. Oh. Um, I like the the wife in this. I think she's mm. probably one of my favorite female horror movie heroines. She's definitely the proper main character and hero of the film. Absolutely. And she takes, she finds an unorthodox solution to the habit, to the problem. It's weird. Something that wouldn't happen in a modern movie. Uh, You wouldn't do it. It's a, it's a strange choice. Uh, So this is Jacqueline Bissett uh, as, uh, what's her name? Paula. Uh, Paula. Uh, She's in, you know, everything. Uh, she's an airport, uh, you know, the the big, I think that's also a Quinn Martin production just like this. Quinn Martin was a big TV guy, but he did some of the major disaster movies in the early days. Oh, okay. And then uh, Paul Wencoast, the director, is also much more of a TV guy. So this does, this, is, this definitely is kind of TV adjacent. A little bit. Um, I... I didn't really get the made-for-TV feel from this movie, but that's because, as we discussed in a previous episode... <laughs> you haven't really seen made-for-TV stuff. <laughs> uh, I have a completely skewed version of what that looks like. Right. <laughs> it's like a lot of daytime shots, a lot of snow. Mm. Uh, yeah, I I, <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about in there. I'm so Jacqueline... It. Jacqueline Bissett, uh, notably, she was in the Casino Royale movie, uh, the the one that's a parody film from the 60s. Oh, okay. As Giovanna Goodthighs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Bad yeah. movie, though. <laughs> that oh. one. Yeah, so we start out with uh, Paula and uh, Alan Alda. His character's name is Miles uh, Clarkson. Clarkson. <laughs> Clarkson. It sounds like a yuppie. It, it it sounds like someone who would be the the yuppie jackass in like an 80s slasher movie. Oh, totally. And he kind of is. He is a music journalist. He wears uh, a turtleneck most of the time. <laughs> yeah. You know? 
he's a very 70s guy. Yeah. A distinctly um, 70s dude. Mm-hmm. And even before all the stuff happens to him, he, I, I think there's some red flags about going up about this guy already. He's in a seemingly happy relationship with his wife. She loves him. She's crazy about him. He doesn't really listen to her all that good. He just does not seem to be present in his own life at all. Uh, I and and I think that's sort of what we get into when when he is sort of ousted from his own body later on. Uh, not really not spoilers, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, no. It happens I, pretty he, early in this one. It doesn't seem to change him all that much. It doesn't really affect uh, the person we know or that we've met. He's a little more standoffish, but like he has never really had much of a different energy previous it, it just like <laughs> someone took over a body that felt like it was already empty that's oh man that is a great way to describe it actually because I, I i watched this movie a couple times now and i never really get a sense of what the alan alda character is like before he transforms yeah he, he just seems like a, an empty suit uh it, it's weird some people say that a lot of the problem is just Alan all is really bad in the movie. I don't know if he's necessarily I don't bad. I think he is. But yeah, he, I, I think there is essentially supposed to be an emptiness in his character. And that's why he's so easy for this cult to uh, subsume. They, they you know, consume him. He becomes part of them and then they become him. He becomes the cult leader. Yeah. So Yeah, so I guess we should get into it. We... Hmm. We start with our two main characters, our main couple, Paula and Miles. Uh, they're in bed. There's this loud cat uh, fighting with a bird outside, and it's waking her up. She's And she's like, yo, Alan Alda, wake up. You're going to be late for a very important work-related thing that you've got to do right now. And he's like, I don't want to. Oh, I like sleeping. We do <laughs> find out that he seems to like sleeping a lot. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he he does go to the event. Uh, it's he's supposed to be interviewing Duncan Eli, a a world as, as famous. As before mentioned, Kurt Jurgens. Yeah, uh, a world famous piano uh, virtuoso artiste. Uh, the experts love him, so he's obviously the best piano player in the world. He's supposed to be the world's greatest. Yes. Supposedly. Yes. Supposedly, it's. There's an interesting bit where he phones the house first and their daughter, Abby, picks up the phone. But before she does, she's like she she's looking at her doll and she's like, can you get the phone? Oh, don't be afraid. And it's just a weird thing to say. Some of this dialogue does feel like it's written by aliens. Well, I, I just kid stuff in this. Uh, this is based on a book, so some of it may come from uh more character existing in the original oh, text because there is a scene later on where we see uh the dog ripping up this doll in a dream and it's supposed to be significant but we don't we don't see the doll we don't well, find out much about the kid well i i think it's more just symbolic because of the the mother's oh. fears of the doll of the dog attacking the daughter because she has has problem with the dog right from the moment she meets it obviously the dog is gaslighting her well the, the dog is like literally a devil dog that's sort of yeah. the point but yeah. um yeah I, I mean there obviously you know the, the, the symbolism of the dog attacking the doll and the doll being associated with the daughter is i think pretty straightforward but um uh 
the the daughter stuff it, it it makes me think that it's sort of exorcist adjacent but of course the exorcist hadn't come out yet oh uh, yeah it, it just it, it feels like it's indulging in certain uh satan's exploitation tropes but uh really the only major text that existed by this point was rosemary's baby and of course there they don't have a kid yet hmm so I thought they, I thought the bad guys were going to use the daughter in a, or do something much more nefarious with the daughter than what they actually did. They only kill her, mm. which is uh, better than what I imagined. I think it was sort of a blood sacrifice kind of deal. It, 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 it this is weird in how it sort of predicts uh, elements of the satanic panic, which I guess sort of generates out of this wave of movies in the seventies that sort of bolstered Catholicism in a weird sort of way. Mm. Like The Exorcist is the biggest hit movie about Catholicism of all time, for sure. Oh yeah. But uh, the 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 concept of these Satanist cabals running, being at the the center of art scenes and stuff, is <laughs> kind of absurd. And let's not forget that the devil also has time, because uh, you know <laughs> being the ruler of hell means you have a lot of free time. So he makes house calls. Well, sure. Yeah, th- this does get a little big for its britches by involving the devil. The, uh, the capital D devil shows up. Yeah, that that is a problem with a lot of these uh, from this era where it's like, well, I mean, it should just be the devil because that's, you know, when you're dealing with things on the level of uh, feudal religion, uh, it's it's still that same sort of thing. You, the, just the devil is present in everyday things just as God is present in everyday things. But it's really hard to make that jump to mass media. Mm. Actually, I do like, they don't show the devil in this. He's just a shadow, but he is there. Yeah, yeah he's present. Yeah. I mean, he's got to be. They, they're, they're summoning him to do things uh, that, it is too easy to do this magic that that is the maybe the biggest problem of the movie oh she figures it out uh, in five minutes she reads the book once she's like i could do this and then she can do this it, it was ebert's main complaint about the movie and the reason he said it sucked <laughs> like it just doesn't even pretend to take horror seriously <laughs> uh, I, I disagree about this movie sucking. I don't think no, it sucks. I like I it quite it. a bit. I think it's really fun and it it has a real atmosphere and a mood to it. I, I love just the dark brown and green color palette. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's you know, it has its problems. <laughs> oh, sure. I, I don't care. I think the problems make it better. Oh, yeah. No, it's fun. It's just wacky that the part, you know, when we get to it, obviously the the news article. The that news made me article laugh so is, hard. Oh my god, the things I have to say about the news article. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but but first we have to have Duncan meeting, or well, yeah, Duncan and Duncan and Miles have to meet, and uh, Miles approaches Duncan's manor as Duncan is playing a song called "The Mephisto Waltz." Yeah, it's really discordant. It does kind of sound like. Maybe something that Kier DeLeo would have played in Black Christmas. Maybe something he was trying to play and just got really wigged out in his totally. recital. Totally, because it, it they both kind of have that same pounding on the keys sort of feel. Mm-hmm. But this one feels like it's going somewhere where that one was just him pounding on the keys. Yeah, and I think this is a real famous piece. Um, it is credited... It's from Liszt, uh, Franz Liszt. 
Yeah, yeah, and, and they get like an actual pianist to do the playing for the recording for the film, I right. believe. Yeah, I mean, that would make sense. It is it is well played, and I don't think Kurt Jurgens is a piano virtuoso. <laughs> Probably not. Nor Alan Alda. I mean, I, th- I think they're both talented men. They're both excellent actors, but, you know. <laughs> they're faking playing the piano. They are. They're fake piano players. I'm going to discredit we... them. <laughs> so after playing, uh, Duncan sits down uh, Alan Alda, Miles, <laughs> yeah. and... Miles is being a musical journalist is about to ask him some questions, but Duncan's like, Oh my God, look at your fucking hands. Holy shit. These hands are amazing. Hey, everybody in the house, come check out this dude's hands. Just mm, those hands though. This is where we meet his daughter, Roxanne. They got a weird relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just say right at the start. Uh, you, you got to put a step in it for them to be able to do this on uh, Pornhub. <laughs> the sort of relationship these guys got. Yeah, there was a point because uh, the first time I had missed that he introduced uh, Roxanne as his daughter. <laughs> so I was like, hold on. Is this woman who he's making out with, is this his wife? Is this supposed to be his daughter? <laughs> and, you, and you said yeah. to me, well, you see. <laughs> well, you see. Uh, yeah the strange relationship it's part of just how this movie has a very strange approach to everything everything's a little bit weirder than i expect it to be in this sort of thing because it it does have sort of a tv feel it's got the a very uh you know light tone palette you have alan alda it's from a lot of tv people it's got a very tv sort of score by jerry goldsmith yeah, that's true. Uh, they do use kind of cheaper cinematography tricks, like a uh, they do put the Vaseline around the outside of the lens for the dream sequences. Oh yeah, or at least it looks like they do. Yeah, and it, it is like a cinematographer who's mainly a TV guy too. Uh, it, it's it's very heavily a TV crew, and just it's it the locations feel really TV to me. Like I I can picture. Columbo in all of these locations. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's just a, a a function of it being filmed in in and around California, where or in in around Los Angeles, where it's just yeah, this is where people in the movie or in the in the TV industry are shooting stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so being a big hit uh, with Duncan Eli because of his hands, Miles is now invited to a dinner party. I don't think he ever got to ask any of the questions he was trying to ask, and I don't think he remembers what he was trying to ask. And this interview he was going to publish, I don't think it – I think it just got dropped. Well, he's getting love-bombed, you know? He is getting love-bombed, and uh, she doesn't want to go to this dinner party because they have a tradition. They go to Mexico for uh, – uh, it's Christmas. Something? Yeah. <laughs> or no, know. no, Mexico is for the, the Christmas party, which is the mask thing. That doesn't happen yet. Right. This is just her. her I think she just doesn't want to. I don't blame her. I don't want to either. They it's very much uh, a they don't belong in this wealthy high society dinner party thing, Uh, much like the dinner party at the beginning of Eyes Wide Shut, where where she asks him, do you know anyone here? And he's like, not a soul. Although in this case, 
like she's not into it <laughs> whereas obviously nicole kidman was like yeah i'm gonna have fun with this but yeah. paula's like i don't like this these people are weird they're, they're all creeps yeah and we see <laughs> and we see they're all like fawning over they're fawning over uh miles uh roxanne has taken a very uh big interest in him which paula notes and he doesn't seem to mind the attention which paula notes right and uh and duncan has uh duncan has miles play the piano a duet with him and and miles is like oh i don't actually want to do this but i guess i gotta oh sucks to be me to be famous and popular in front of all these people so one of the things we've missed is that uh uh Miles's background is that he used to be a pianist, but it didn't work out. Oh, yes, yes. He used to be uh, a concert studied, pianist. Yeah, but it didn't work out. He had he got a embarrassing review at for oh, one, one of those experts. Concerts. Yeah, from one of those experts. He, he performed it, a forgery of a concert and they're like, nah. Oh, what does I can't remember what they exactly said, but it was like intensely uninspiring or something like that. Right, you know, it's just a copy of a copy. Who who's yeah. interested in that? He's not bringing life to his forgery. Mm-hmm. So so he quit rather than try to get better at it and become a musical journalist. Which that that's a criticism in and of itself. That that's like, yeah, you know, he couldn't do so. He became a critic. Which it it is funny that there is a through line between these two movies. <laughs> They're both kind of decrying criticism and experts. But this one, it's obviously a little more sour about it <laughs> yeah well this one like duncan even says about miles's journalism profession is those who can do those who can't write about it mm-hmm. although he says this as miles so it it just seems like kind of self-deprecating humor at first yeah although it's it's i mean not really because we know it's duncan but yeah, I, well, I mean, I, I guess we're supp- it's supposed to be taken as self-deprecating from Alda uh, as Miles, but um, e- even there, I don't know, because it, it just, just the emptiness at the core of his character does seem like the movie has set him up to be an empty suit that just, yeah, he, he was, he failed at art, but he has the physical skill to do it so why why doesn't someone who's better at it use his body (laughs) well from uh from duncan's perspective yeah these amazing hands are just going to waste and they kind of are because he is sort of worthless it does seem like he is just not doing anything of any worth he's just sort of existing yeah um from the the very few references that we can see his writing's not even that good apparently no. So as they leave the party, uh, this is our first interaction with Robin, the gaslighting devil dog, who uh, great big dog, dis- great big dog, real adorable, real cute, despises Paula, but pretends to be all lovey dovey with her when anybody else is around. Yeah, the, the Michigan J Frog thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the dog is actually the first person to gaslight her, but. Everybody will by the time this is over. Uh, the next day, mm. uh, the next day, Paula is working at her shop with her friend Maggie, and they're talking about how they've made eleven dollars the whole day. 
So it's the grand opening or something, isn't it? They they've just moved here or something. This is their yeah. new place. Yeah, it's the grand opening. It's it's like I don't really get a sense for what kind of store this is. It's like one of these weird rummage shops. It's it's sort of like I can't remember what they used to call these places. There there used to be a few of them around town, but most of them don't exist anymore. Uh, like a trader trading post type place where you got uh, just a bunch of art pieces that have been collected from around the world that uh, are sort of pricey and high end, but kitschy. And it's like, it's, it's home decor, but it's all like uh, home decor that feels like it's been stolen from some other culture. Mm-hmm. But who comes along to save the, save the sales and save the day is uh, Duncan Eli. Just and all of his buds, all of his high society buds, just buying up everything in the store. And Maggie's like, holy shit, we've just made $500 in sales. And Paul is like, this is actually like really fucking creepy. I don't like it. This is weird. Yeah. What's with these people? I really don't like these people. It's like if he's given so much money to my OnlyFans, is he going to expect me to be in a relationship with him? Yeah, well, her, well, it's, it's, she knows that they're after her husband. But yeah. it, the, the thing is, it's like, she is immediately aware that they're trying to buy them and she doesn't like it. But the there, thing there about Miles, the thing about Miles is he's totally ready to be bought. <laughs> uh, he, I'm he a starving has, artist. Well, it, it's not even that he, he doesn't, he's not an artist. He, there, oh, yeah, he right. has no pretensions to being an artist in any way. The other guy's trying to make him an artist. Uh, because there's that whole thing about him making sure that the, he has a piano and he's not really interested in getting it for some time until like he is taken over. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the, the, the idea that just he is ready to sell out because he kind of doesn't exist. Like he is so ready to just it's like, Oh yeah, fine. You, you can buy me. What, what else am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> if I'm going to be a fake, I might as well be a fake for money. Yeah. Which is yeah. already, which I, I think implication, uh, implication wise in, in terms of the, the, the politics of this movie is like, that's what he's doing as a critic is just, he's already just uh, a hollow uh, sold out. Nothing. <laughs> this movie does seem to really uh, not like it, it is one of those movies that feels very acidic towards uh, criticism of any kind. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't feel that way about F for Fake, which is very uh, more just about expertise is bullshit. This is one just like, you know, people who are journalists and critics are uh, just uh, writing the coattails of artists. That does seem to be where this uh, where this movie is going. Uh, th- one of my favorite lines uh, in the early part of the film is after after Duncan and his buddies leave. Uh, Paula's friend Maggie is like, "Now I remember where I know his name from. His wife was murdered. Oh yeah, by a dog. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of those weird, like, kind of alien speak things that just kind of stuck out in my head, like." You don't get murdered by a dog. Although in this case, with this dog, it, it does qualify as murder. Well, yeah, wasn't this dog sort of a serial killer or something? Yeah, yeah, the dog. Well, there's a whole art- article in the uh, Geneva newspaper about it. Right. This dog made headlines in Switzerland or in uh, 
is it Switzerland? Uh, Sweden, I want to say. Sweden, yeah. No, Geneva. I think Geneva is Switzerland. Why don't I know this? I should know uh, this. I'll look it up and make sure. Switzerland, yes. Geneva okay. is in Switzerland. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so the dog makes headlines in uh, Switzerland, in uh, Geneva at least, which, sure. <laughs> well, they were on vacation there or something. Oh. Wasn't it? Yeah, I, I, we're not there yet. We'll get to we're it. We're not there. No. But, but yeah, I mean, obviously when they say the thing about the dog, we've already met this giant dog who hates Paula. And it, it's clearly putting those two things together. It's like, okay, that's obviously the dog or some yeah. form of the dog. And at this point, I'm thinking, well, why is Duncan Eli keeping around the dog who obviously murdered his wife? Is the dog gaslighting him, too? Oh, oh, I was such a sweet summer child. Oh, I I thought it was always obvious from the beginning that he was uh, running this whole scheme right from it's like, oh, those hands. I got to get those hands. Yeah, I just. I knew it was going to be a get out scenario. I just I didn't know how I didn't yet know how the dog factored in because mm. uh, it turns out there's a good reason why he would have the dog kill as what? Well, not a good reason, but an in-character reason. <laughs> We're going to have to get to this eventually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we got another scene of Paula and. Miles arguing in bed. This is the one where she doesn't want to go to the New Year's party because the mask party. Yeah, they always do their Mexico thing. And she's not into like the whole eyes wide shut bullshit. She saw what happened to Tom Cruise. It just ruined his life. Maybe. Probably not. Actually, he was able to white idiot his way out of it. Yeah, and that movie's much later than this. I I feel like too. Uh. I, I don't know, her whole, like, oh, we have this tradition, we're going to do this thing. I'm like, yeah, but the money, though. <laughs> you, you that's kind of that, his argument. Yeah. That, that's, like, that's where he's at. He has been making no money for long enough, and he, it, it does, like, it really does feel like a, an extension of the Care Delea character, and that, like, yeah, he's really dissatisfied with how things have gone, and he'd really like to get another slice of that pie. You could just get the chance to. Yeah, so if he he can just make plans, and if his wife can just go along with his plans without objecting, that would be great. So they, of course, they go to the New Year's party, and this is where we see the, the dog, dog with the human mask. The so hu- creepy. Because this scary. is a really good human mask. It's good, and it's the first thing we see of the party. So we just start with dog and human mask wandering around people's legs, and like, what the fuck is this? I thought it was some satanic uh, chimera. I Yeah, I thought it was that, or I thought it was a nightmare sequence that we were seeing, because, you know, he was just previously showing them in bed arguing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, nope, just a dog with a mask. We find out that uh, Duncan is talented at pianos, and Roxanne is talented at... Witchcraft. Uh, witch, well, witchcraft. Making, making plaster faces of people, but yes, witchcraft. Yeah, they're for the purposes of witchcraft. But yeah, yeah, she does. She takes casts of people's faces and she has all sorts of them on her wall. Mm-hmm. Which uh, Paula is about to find after she gets disgusted by uh, Duncan making out with with uh, Roxanne at the party in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. The millionaires are all in on all of this, of course. Well, We've... The, they are a literal satanic cabal. 
We don't know this yet, but they are. No. Yes. Yeah. So she is, she says she's stoned, but she also says a lot that she's stoned on champagne. So I think yeah, that, she's just drunk. No, that stoned is just like back then you would use the word stoned for drunk as well. Oh, okay. Okay. People say that on admin all the time. Madmen. Oh, 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 I watched the first episode of that. I got to get back into it. Yeah. Good show. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so she wants to leave the party. She's wasted. She is creeped the fuck out by everything. And she ends up wandering upstairs to the creepy mask room where she is uh, discovered by the creepy gaslighting devil dog. And, well, I, and rock- well, it's a devil dog. So it's it's sort of a, a, a mystical guard. It can show up wherever it's needed in the house. Oh, yeah. After the second watch of, of the film, I totally, I totally agree with you. It's mm-hmm. never outright stated, but the dog just—it's always just where it needs to be. Yeah, the dog's a supernatural presence. Yeah, yeah, totally. And of course, he's growling at her until Roxanne shows up, and then he's just, oh, just the sweetest little boy. Oh, look at him roll over. Oh, tummy rubs. Such a really a cute dog, though, for real. It's a good dog. So Roxanne and Paula begin talking for a bit and she's like what do you think of my masks and paul is basically like i hate them they're not abstract enough they're too real and it creeps me out just like basically everything in this house and everything about you guys creep me out you guys are all weird i i don't like you you're creeping me out stop it and roxanne of course is like well i want to do a i want to do a plaster cast of your husband miles his bones are amazing i love his bones Duncan loves his hands, but I love his bones. She has a weird line where she says, will you please let me do him? (laughs) She's like, that's weird. He's like, I'm not my husband's. uh, It's like, I'm not in charge of my husband. Yeah, I'm not my husband's keeper. Yeah. And smash cut to her doing the plaster mold of his face. Mm -hmm. And she's uh, going off about her love life, how she, her uh, first husband was 30 when she was 15. Yeah. yeah. Well, she was she she was married to uh you know probably another member of the cabal for a time mm-hmm. for image sake. Yeah, yeah. And then she divorced him, dated a bunch of other people, and then settled down with uh, this guy Bill, who we're actually going to meet a bit later. Mm-hmm. I think I like Bill, but I'm not sure. Bill seems all right. He he seems all right. He he seems like he read the writing on the wall and got out at the right time. Well, not not in time enough, really. Well... Th- that he was ever involved was a problem. Yes. Yes. And as as they're doing the plaster thing, Duncan Eli walks in with... Uh, suddenly has leukemia. He's actually had it for the whole time, and... But now he's... Now he's being a feeble old Mr. Burns. I figure it was devil power that let him play the piano and be all all host of the party like that before because now he's clearly on death's door and we're not really sure how much time has passed i i think it has maybe been a little bit of time but uh the the idea is yeah it, probably he he was using uh various powers to do the couple things because it, it was all a seduction they were looking mm-hmm. like the reason they contacted uh miles in the first place is they wanted him they they're specifically trying to get a hold of someone who can be the new vessel. Mm-hmm. 
So he had to have already been uh, dying of leukemia and just being like, okay, we're we're setting out, we're going to collect the right guy, and then you know we'll reveal it to him at the right time. And uh, and my, or Duncan says this line uh, that I've heard before, but I don't know if I don't know if I've heard it before this. People should start their life at seventy, and then just can't remember exactly how it goes, but just get younger as they go on. And Benjamin Button. Oh, is that it? Okay. No, I'm just saying that that's literally the plot of Benjamin Button. Oh. Have you seen right. that curious case of Benjamin Button? Brad Pitt. Three ages <laughs> no, backwards. Oh shit! He's no born as like an 80 year old, and then you know he he gets younger over the years, and then he he dies as an infant. It's a weird, sad movie. Oh, the uh, the birth giving process must have been so painful. Yeah, it didn't look like it was great. He was really wrinkly and old. Ugh. Um, <laughs> uh, I I saw it in the theater and got a hot dog at New York Fries, which is a really big mistake, and I had the worst food poisoning I've ever had in my life after seeing that movie. So it's all weirdly uh, blurred in with feverish hallucinations for me anytime <laughs> I think of it. I, I'm sorry for laughing. That sounds terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry that you ate a hot dog at New York Fries. Oh yeah, that was a, that was a stupid, stupid thing to do. Yeah. I got, oh, what did I get? Something fucking terrible. Very bad food poisoning. Sickest I've ever been in my life. So Paula and Miles have another argument. They're like, I hate Roxanne, and Miles is like, <laughs> Yeah, I bet you do. I bet you're jealous. And and Paula's like, I'm not jealous. Maybe I am a little bit. And then Miles changes the subject by telling her that he's dying. And he's so sad. He's like, he's the greatest piano player there ever was. And no one will ever hear his pianos again. We have to keep we have to keep going over to their house. Well, yeah, it's it, it is the, the, the scarcity thing. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. uh, the it's pretty. But is it art? Is it's it- pretty. But is it rare? I was like, well, no, it's it's really rare. Uh, we, you know, we got to spend every moment we can. Where, you know, it's it's always been the same amount. Uh, obviously, he's being courted. I I think oh, a lot definitely. of this is a, a spell being cast over him already. In in the idea of uh, him, want like we haven't seen him talking about it, but clearly Duncan has been talking about how. You know, it's it's too bad that the world will never get to hear my uh, piano playing again, my virtuoso playing. And that, you know, they, they've had these sort of conversations where they talk about how great he is. But I really think if you worked hard at it, you could pick up the torch. Yes. And, and guaranteed they had that talk. Yeah, definitely the idea of where uh, he's pretending it's going. Mm-hmm. So. Miles is in Duncan's house. He's giving he's donating blood right there in the house. I guess I guess he's got his own nurses. He's really rich. Satan nurses, though. Well, sure. But he's also really rich. He's also really rich. And this is where the trippy dream like the first trippy dream sequence with the Vaseline camera happens. He, she, Roxanne takes his blood and is like, goodbye, Duncan. And does like this whole satanic ritual thing with uh, blue finger paint on the floor. That's what I'm going to call that stuff it, from now on. It is. It is just some blue fucking finger paint. And and she, yeah, she she draws a pentagram with it, I believe. As yeah, well, right? yes, a pentagram. Uh, she puts the plaster mask of his face on Duncan's head while Duncan is reading a, from the whatever the Satan book that he's got. Yeah, and, I don't know. Some yeah. some 
some Salima thing, maybe. Yeah, that's the Satan book. And that's got really good instructions so that anyone can perform satanic rituals. It, it is definitely one of the big problems of the movie. It's like, it's too stupidly simple to do this. It's like, why wouldn't everyone be doing this? <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't have the book. Yeah, I mean, you can find a book. Uh, yeah, that, that is... I, I do agree with Ebert in that, like, it is sort of the movie ruining point that it's way too easy to pull off all this devil bullshit. It's, you know, it's a pretty s- simple step-by-step process with blue paint. You, you just need some of that blue paint. <laughs> put put a little bit here, draw a star. Uh, oh, yeah, you need that pentagram. <laughs> I'm just picturing it as a connect-to-the-dots thing on the page. And then, like... And then they flushed me down the toilet and I went to another house. And in the, in the other house, they did things to me. You know, it's, <laughs> it's very preschool. It, it is the McMartinville preschool panic. Just, oh my uh, God. The, the things that they think Satan is capable of doing is astonishing when they don't seem to think uh, that believing in God will allow them to do these things. And that's the one that they're working with. I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I, I've never understood it let's be fair uh i I, again uh, not the best past with religion yeah it's like devil is real and he can do all this stuff and you always have to be watching out for him and he will trick you and he can swap your body and he can possess a dog god is also real and is way more powerful than satan but he won't do anything yeah, he's not going to do anything, and he's going to be really judgeful of everything that you do, even though uh, supposedly everything you do is because of his omniscience. But I don't know. There, there's there's so many holes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, quote, unquote, Miles now wakes up. He has already been get-outed. Uh, the real Miles has gotten out of being alive. And, well, I, uh, is he still in there? Uh, he is. Just, you know, he's in the sunken like, place. Yeah, we don't see anything like that. It it strongly implies that Miles is just dead now. Because, I mean, it, it doesn't seem to make any difference. He still seems to be the same person, uh, but slightly also the other guy. It, it, he's completely able to pass as the previous person because he still seems to have an amount of himself. It's just there wasn't that much of himself to begin with. Yeah, and, and well, we didn't talk about it, but that's the whole reason why Duncan was like love bombing Miles and going into the store and buying everything. She she actually mentions it. It's like he's studying us like rats in a maze, because um, he's trying to study Miles and see like, hey, how can I act like him for long enough so that his change into me will be will seem like natural progression. Mm-hmm. Is, is what I figure. But and then it turned out that it's actually really easy to be Miles because he's not anything. Yeah, he's sort of just nothing. But Duncan still doesn't quite pull it off because Paula still suspects him almost immediately uh, because she she does one of the like the little lovey dovey couples catchphrases that I suppose couples have. I wouldn't uh, know. Uh, she's like love, love, love. <laughs> and <laughs> you could have like. You could easily guess what they're – take a stab at what the cr- correct response to this is, but he doesn't even try. He's like, no, sex. Must have sex. Apparently, Duncan is really good at fucking, though. Way better than Miles. Yeah, I mean, Miles is nothing. Yeah. He, he has no passion. 
uh, just again the the idea of Miles is just he's this complete wet blanket nothing because he failed as a pianist and so he has no worth. It's almost like maybe he should have died in that sorority. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's uh he he entered a null session by being the version of him that did not die. Oh my god. <laughs> I was I was thinking about Homestuck and I wasn't sure if I wanted to bring that into the show. <laughs> well, I mean, we've mentioned it so many times before. Yeah, that's true. I just wasn't sure if I wanted to do it today. So at the at Duncan's funeral, uh this is where we find out that they're all all the satanic cabal because they're doing <laughs> satan chanting oh and right yeah it's it's a really wacky funeral mm-hmm. yeah she even puts like some of the blue paint on the coffin and paula's like what the hell is all this mumbo jumbo are they like doing a devil ritual and the blue paint is really all purpose huh it uh, does everything not- you need yeah, it's it's like the duct tape of Satanism in this movie. I don't really understand that because I've never heard of blue paint being associated with the devil in any way before. It's it's strange. It just like to be again, it is the most TV element It's just we really needed one thing that is simple and visual and easily communicated to the audience. And it was very easy to go through standards and practices with the blue paint. It couldn't be blood. <laughs> I suppose. And the, the way Miles slash Duncan responds to it is to uh, Paula asking about that is like, well, everyone has the right to their own religion. Like super huffy and offended about it. Yeah, it's of his he's railing on his religion. And then after that, they go to the will reading. <laughs> and I always love this part because the lawyer is like, no, at the beginning of the will, uh, the guy with the really great hands who I met three weeks ago. Is at the top of the will. He gets the piano and all this money, and I really hope that he continues his uh, musical practice. Now, slightly less important than the guy with the great hands I met three weeks ago is my daughter, who gets the house. I really like uh, him reacting to uh, the will reading the, the way he really is like, Haha, yeah, great. He, he looks so jazzed to be getting it. And like, <laughs> you're at a will reading. Uh, you, you're supposed to have liked that guy, but and no one is bothered by it because they're all in <laughs> they on all it. Know. Like, the, the only one who might care is Jacqueline Bissett, but uh, she doesn't care because she didn't like Duncan. She hated him a whole lot. Yeah. And, and she likes the hundred thousand dollars that they're going to get. Oh yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's great. So when they get back, they go on this – they they use their newfound money. There's this really short scene where I guess they're on vacation in Mexico, and here's where Duncan Miles is acting all weird because I guess this is where they always go for their New Year's thing that they couldn't go to this time. Right. See, my, my read definitely is that there is some residual amount of Miles to him in terms of the personality because – there are things that don't feel very Duncan and there are things that feel kind of milesy and just in that like he he has a fair amount of knowledge but not all of it and he's got like it, the the way he reacts to the will reading and the thing with the piano where he doesn't really pick it up right away even though that was sort of the the intended thing is like you really got to get to the piano and it's like it's sort of taking him a while it's like Right, yeah, I gotta get that piano and uh, really let myself be taken over. Well, he can't get the piano because he can't fit it into his apartment. Right, they they would need to put a bulldozer through the wall. Roxanne helpfully offers hers. 
bitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so the solution to the whole not having a piano thing is that Roxanne just is going to give Miles the keys a spare key to her house so she can go or so he can go in and play the piano. That's a normal thing to do when uh when you're not having an affair with somebody else's husband. Well, I mean, he's supposed to have that piano and the, the you know, they're weird artist people. Uh, uh, yes. Honestly, I don't think it's even the the slightest bit strange in this sort of community. It's like, oh yeah, you especially in like 1971, you're you're a bunch of uh, weird artist types, and one of you has like this villa with a piano. It's like, yeah, a bunch of people are probably gonna have keys to that place. I do kind of feel like it was sort of a swinger house, like like yeah. that was a swinger party that they had. Yeah, like as we said, it's a nice white shut party. They're they're yeah. all doing the masks. It's it's the thing. It's a fucking dog in a human mask. It's creepy. <laughs> Speaking of dogs, guess who owns the devil dog now? Abby. Okay. Right. So we have not even met Abby before this, or it's like she's basically not been we mentioned. We have, but not. It's really. the daughter. She, she. It's the daughter. She answered the phone. She's she's there to get killed. Right, and so and she she shows up and she has the dog, and the mom's like, "No, you don't. You can't keep this dog. This dog gaslights me." Oh, and she mom. immediately, oh, "Mommy, mommy won't let me. I'll just ask dad. He'll override you." Yeah, of course, dad is wants the dog because like he likes it's, that it's dog. The dog, dog likes him. Yeah. Uh, uh but I I think. The, the the daughter is such a weird character because it just seems like it would have been super easy to win over the daughter. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. her death is necessary, I guess, as part of the deal. It's part of the bargain. She's got to go. He doesn't want to do it, according to the dream. But, you know, if he really didn't want to do it, he could have just, you know, not uh, not done this whole ritual to begin with. But. Well, again, that's not happening. The the question being, how much of it is him and how much of it is Duncan? Like, how much is Miles and how much is Duncan? And whether uh, Miles has any sort of bearing in it? Like, it could still be some remnant of Miles that does not want to do it versus Duncan who does want to do it. Uh, I read it as it was full Duncan, and he's just saying that he doesn't want to do it, you know, to feel better about himself. Oh, I don't want to hurt a child, but. I don't not want to badly enough to not do it. Well, I mean, you know, he has a whole plan. Yeah, oh yeah, no, it's a, it's a whole plan. So here's where I thought it was going to get real gross. And I'm glad they didn't go down this road. I thought they were going to put Roxanne into Abby and, and get out mm. her. And then they were going to continue their gross relationship that way. But it was going to be double gross because she's actually like 12. Oh, yeah. No, I I feel like that would be very unlikely to do in a 70s movie that just especially a a, a mainstream movie made by 20th Century Fox. I, I don't think that that would be a likely thing to do. But yeah, the the idea is Roxanne is free to be uh, this guy's uh, uh, side piece because, you know, they, they're not related. So, you know, it's perfect. <laughs> they're not related and they're the same age. Mm hmm. So after the whole thing with the dog, uh, Paula has a dream, and it's in this dream where Duncan comes – first she wakes up. She goes into Abby's gothic bedroom because it's a dream, of course. They've all got to have like the gothic bedrooms with all the 
cobwebs and the flowing curtains and all that, where the dog is just shredding this Raggedy Ann doll. Right. You know, and, as I mentioned earlier, pretty obvious uh, yeah, imagery. Yeah, I should have. But I didn't pick up on it, but I'm picking up on it now. And uh, Duncan, actual old man Duncan comes in. And this is why I think that this part isn't uh, or may. Oh, maybe it's that uh, Miles is lingering in the body and killing Abby is what gets the rest of him out. Could be. I I do feel that it's not fully there because there's the thing with the piano and how he doesn't like it's not just that he's like, oh, well, you know, it would be impossible to move the piano. He seems disinterested in it. Like they, they come like, well, you haven't been getting to the piano. You know, I thought that was a whole big part of it. It's like, yeah, I mean, it's just literally not possible. He doesn't seem that concerned about it yet, where I feel that that was a, a significant part of the point. He wouldn't care about this fucking vacation shit. Mm, not true. with like, because that's with Paula. It's not with his daughter who he's actually interested in. Well, it, I think it's all part of the misdirection. He's got to continue. Yeah, but do you uh, think he'd care that much? Maybe Who's going to believe anything? Because <laughs> she does go to the police and try to explain it, and she realizes, like, no, this is fucking stupid. Yes, officer, I would like to report a satanic cult has uh, possessed my husband's body and telepathically killed people. Um, she, she actually does, basically. Yes, she does. The cops do laugh at her. Right. And I, I, I feel that that's sort of key in there that, like, I, I don't understand why he would bother with that much subterfuge when uh, just by being in the body of this guy. He's like, yeah, well, I mean, who cares? What is she going to say to anybody? What are they going to do about it? Yeah, I guess. But he's got to make all the killings look like accidents still. Well, sure. I mean, you don't want to get caught for murder. No, no, definitely not. So even if you change bodies, you're still going to go to the fucking chair. <laughs> you just change bodies to get out to one that isn't in the chair. It's real easy to do. It is stupidly easy to do. That is a big problem. <laughs> so Paula wakes up and Abby had the same dream. Big warning signs there. And Paula's just like, oh, well, don't worry about it. It's just a dream. It's not real. It's not real. And then Abby dies from mysterious illness. Yeah, she she just gets really sick all of a sudden. And I, I, also, there was the blue paint thing. There was the blue paint in the dream, and then there was the blue paint oh, yes. on her in real life. Right, yeah. Um, she had, Paula finds the blue paint on Abby's forehead after she wakes up from the dream. All-purpose where... satanic blue paint. Yeah, yeah. The, the blue uh, man group, this stuff. is like their whole thing. Oh my god! <laughs> Did you know that they were practicing Satanists and that all of their power came from the blue paint that they were using to, you know, draw Satan into them and power, you know, their goofy instruments? They must have so much Satanic power. Oh, unbelievable. Like, they're their own temple. Holy shit, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Abby just dies basically off screen, and Paula tells Miles about the dream and is like, is it, is it true or... She, what she says do you think dreams can be true that's and, such a weird thing to say yeah that, that's a very bizarre line yeah and and she's like it, it could be like a devil thing is it possible is it possible to worship the devil does and, bruno mars is gay does no, bruno- I, it's <laughs> yeah it, it, weird 
a weird way of talking, and I, I guess she isn't fully convinced that Miles is Duncan yet either, or she hasn't really started to put it together, but she does hate Roxanne. That, that's oh, still, yeah. like, her main fixation. Well, right now she just thinks Miles is cheating with Roxanne, and, yeah. you know, he his personality, his personality has changed a little bit. But yeah, now that she's had this dream and then Abby dies immediately after, she begins suspecting uh, the dog. Satan. <laughs> well, Satan too, and the dog, because she goes to the library. <laughs> this sequence. So she goes to the library, and what the hell did she say to the librarian to get this book that she's able to flip to the page of the dog immediately? Well, she's looking. She she knows when the woman died because remember that came up earlier. That the, oh yeah, Eli's the, wife. Yeah, so she she's found the date of the death and she's just like looking for the articles about it. And I I love the <laughs> woodcut drawing of the lynched dog. Just <laughs> I incredible. had to stop the movie because I was just laughing at this drawing of this hanged dog just looking normal sad. Not yeah, like, artist no. representation. But <laughs> it looks like, like it's a medieval drawing. Yes, it does. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's so it's, strange. Like it's just like, it's a weird choice because it looks like it's something that you'd find in a satanic manual in one of these movies. It's very strange that they decided to use this woodcut drawing style for the news article of something that happened, you know, a few years previous in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> that does like, seem... Yeah, Switzerland isn't in the 15th century. Switzerland is also <laughs> in the present day. <laughs> Again, Actually, it's, it maybe feels like a TV thing where it's a shorthand. It's like, well, this makes it feel more Switzerland-y because it's old country. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. I never even thought about that because that's like something you'd look to... S- You'd expect to find if you were opening up a Salem newspaper from the witch trial era. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) They had photographs. Yeah, they had photographs. It was like 10 years ago. It was like 1960. Uh, There there were fucking movies. (laughs) Color (laughs) movies. movies existed. (laughs) This dog, I just feel like it would be a meme if if this movie came out today. Yeah, the, like, it's, it is a very funny moment when they reveal that because like it, it it's given the full screen treatment to, to this uh, news article. It's like, that's bizarre looking. And it's so funny because you've been leading up to it. You heard about the murder by the dog and just that it cuts to the dog being executed by a lynch mob. And it's like, oh, it was the dog serial killer. OK, this is really suddenly getting very strange. Killer dog. Oh, yeah. They call it like a Slayer dog in the article. Slayer dog. Hell yeah. I don't know how Slayer music actually sounds. Yeah, a thrashier. Yeah. That was more like Pantera. Um, She also, in the process of investigating everything, uh, goes to Roxanne's ex-husband, Bill. Doesn't she meet Bill at a party or something? And like, he does not want to talk to her at first. He doesn't want to talk to her at first. She tracks him down at like his office. He, he kind of looks like Saul Goodman in the, in this first scene that he's in. So Mm -hmm. I like to imagine that that's just 
who this character is because we don't see a lot of him, but he seems like a nice enough guy. Uh, he talks about how how they divorced shortly after uh, Eli's wife, uh, Roxanne's mom, died, but she doesn't want to talk about it, or he doesn't want to talk about it at all. And he's just like, okay, get out of my office. You're done. Yeah, he's just uh, – he does not want to think about the bizarre relationship he had with his wife. As, as we'll later learn, uh, he's pretty aware of what was probably actually going on, and he's just like, <laughs> I just need to get away from this entirely, and I don't want to think about it ever again. And so this lady shows up wanting to ask about uh, his wife and her dad, and it's like, oh, I don't want to be a part I of this. I don't just, want I, I yeah. am done with this person already. Please don't draw me into this. Yeah, again, I, I, <laughs> I, I got out of this. Deal with, yeah, I don't want to deal with their drama anymore. Their, ew, ew, gross. Their Satan drama. Yeah, well, there's Satan incest drama. Ugh, ugh, yeah. So we finally see uh, all the practice that Miles Duncan has been doing as he gets he gets to uh, perform at one of the concerts that Duncan was supposed to do. Right, he takes over the rest of the tour schedule ultimately because he somehow is able to perfectly do it. Somehow. Somehow. Well, I've been practicing piano for eight hours straight, and uh, I I wanted to emulate his style because Duncan was uh, the only one who believed in me, so I wanted to do it exactly like him. He's doing Uh, a good forgery. Yeah, a good forgery. So it's still art, right? I mean, everybody's applauding. It seems to be valued by the experts. Yeah, yeah. Stop being a shitty expert, Paula. Uh, <laughs> but but Bill is at yeah. Bill meets up with her at the uh, at the performance. He's he spies on her from like across the audience, where only Paula and Bill are the only ones not clapping. Yeah, they, they well, everyone else is doing like a standing ovation, and they mm-hmm. see each other and it's like. Okay, we both really like I, I think it maybe was almost to a point a test for him that he went there and saw that she is very much against this and's like, okay, I can probably trust to talk to this lady about what's really going on. Yeah. Well he mentions like he found his conscience after her hearing about how her daughter was killed. Right. And he's like, Okay, well, like out of my life now, but it sucks for these people, so I'll just tell her what I know and maybe also have an affair with this hot milk. Yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> why the fuck not? I would. And Roxanne doesn't like that Paul is spending a lot of time with Bill and is like, you stay away from him. And Paul is just loving this. She's like, no, actually, I like him. I think I'm going to have an affair with him. It's going to be great. Well, it's, it's very weird that Roxanne keeps trying to force this friendship between her and Paula. She's always hanging out with Paula. She's always kind of like, yeah, you know, we're, we're buds. We're, we're close friends now. And Paula just kind of has to deal with this, this lady being around her who she cannot stand. Yep. Who is either a Satan devil princess or is just having an affair with her husband. Either way, not, not a pleasant person. Well, technically it's both. Yeah, it is technically both. And also having an affair with her father. Uh, it's it's all three at the it's, same time. Yeah. So that, that's interesting because she says to Miles, it's like, it feels like you have three people inside of you. And I'm just kind of like, who's the third one? Satan. Oh, of course. Satan's she, always with us. See, she is really perceptive. Yeah. <laughs> she, she basically... She figures out the plan pretty much right from the beginning, and the only reason she doesn't 
succeed right at the beginning is because she's like, that can't be it, can it? She's like, that plot's too stupid. I must have read the script wrong. That is, yes, exactly. That's too stupid. Let's let this play out. Investigation and oh my god, it is that. It's like ah, it's it's a deal with Satan for incest, and my husband got caught in the crossfire, and now he's a possessed pianist. I'm gonna have to get into this Satan business. Well, not yet. First, (laughs) not yet, but pretty quick. Bill, yes, we got to deal with Bill because she. She goes out to his cool beach house. Yeah, his cool beach house. She wants information, but I think she actually likes this guy. He seems pretty charming, and he she's just been cool. she's been dealing with Alan Alda not being interested in her for no real reason. He just seems to be a bored wet blanket about everything. And then, you know, once he's the other guy, he's obviously <laughs> there for his daughter in the first place. Right. And, you know, they could have they could have had a really healthy, nice consensual affair i I was kind of cheering for the for their relationship it it definitely seems like that's where it's headed for sure Uh, and then you know it just doesn't have to die well yeah she goes to sleep and he falls down the stairs (laughs) (laughs) he fall because he had too much to drink but first he's got to reveal that he knew the divorce happened because roxanne was pregnant but she had a miscarriage yeah and he's like i'm sure it was not mine i'm sure it was her father's I can't prove it. I don't know, but I'm sure that that child was Duncan Eli's. And right. I just don't want to have anything to do with this bullshit anymore. Yeah. But I'll have an affair with the hot milk, so whatever. Uh, but then, yes, he falls down the stairs, quote unquote. And he's got blue paint on him, so obviously, you know, yeah. it's the same thing. Man, that blue paint, it does everything. It can even teleport because... You just have to put the blue paint on him in your dream, and then it comes into reality. I mean, and presumably then, she has some sort of access to him already, and, you know, she she would have uh, access to this guy. Like, you know, she was oh, married sure. to him. She she probably has uh, voodoo dolls or some sort of shit. Oh, you you feel like there's a connection she can exploit. I mean, probably if they fucked even once— she probably controls him because that's how these Satan cults in fiction work. Yeah. Well, this one, it seems like very easy. It's very (laughs) overpowered Satan, Satan palette. Like you just need some blue paint and you can move the world. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Blue paint and a book. Well, blue paint and instruction guide. Yes. Yeah. That's what it is. The problem that uh, the world's greatest hero uh, had is that, you know, he had the suit, but he didn't have the instruction manual to use the suit. Oh, everybody's got the blue paint. You just need to know how to uh, use it to do Satan stuff. Yeah. Just draw like a star with a circle on it on the ground and put some on somebody's forehead and off you go. That's it. Yeah. But you you just need the special instructions on how to target it, I guess. But yeah, Uh, pentagram, some blue paint. That's all you need. It's Mm -hmm. way too easy. I I think you had to have the ritual in there. They had to have show some sort of ritual, but they made it too simple. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Way too simple. It is. It's too laughable. Yeah. Cause yeah. So she finds him dead and is like, all right, it's time for me to do some of this Satan business. I'm going to get some of that blue paint for me. Well, first the cops have to completely right. ignore her. She, she has to try giving the, it's well, again, the, it's this the invisible typewriter. Yeah, uh, yes. 
Um, yeah, that's right. Because doesn't the guy, uh, the cop friend or the, the airport security friend, the TSA guy, go to the cops, tell them everything that's happening. And they're like acting uh, such a good gag, though. They're acting like super serious about it. It's like, all right, we need to get the expert in. So then they bring in like more people and he's just telling the story again. And then they just laugh. Then they all laugh. Yeah, it, it's exactly like that. It, she's sitting there and she's starting to talk to them. And she realizes that the things she's about to say. and like. This is not going to get me anywhere. So going back home, uh, she finds a fake, very obviously fake letter by Miles because it's not even in his handwriting. A bad forgery. Yeah. You're going to have to get one of those handwriting experts to check on that. Yeah. And then her ring. Oh, I forgot Miles with his $100,000 showered her with gifts, including the most Satan ring you could give a person. This is like... If you look up a D&D monster manual or something like that for a cursed ring, it's a picture of this ring. Mm. And the ring glows and it causes her to have a dream where Miles and Roxanne show up and look at her and they go, she knows. But then oh, yeah, finger- she, she does know. She does know. And then they finger paint her and then, <laughs> and then they fuck in front of her in the dream. Uh, and Alan Alda, it switches from Alan Alda to Duncan Eli, like back and forth, kind of stroby. And it's gross. But the thing is, she still wants. She does. <laughs> she her thing is she still wants Alda. She's and like I, I and I want to say specifically she wants Alda. It's it's not that she wants Miles. It's not that she wants Duncan. She wants that Alda body. That's basically what she says. She's like, I want that. She basically like, I want that body. I don't care who's in it. Yeah. I want your hands. I want your body. Everyone just wants Alan all this body. No one wants his mind. <laughs> That's the damnedest thing about this movie. It's so strange. Yep. So he's out on his tour, of course, in real, not in the dream, but in real life. So she reaches into his coat pocket and finds the keys to the mansion. Right. Which makes and, sense. You know, yeah, of he, course. Leave them behind. Yeah, of course. And uh, she goes up to the creepy mask room and the uh, the Satan book is so poorly guarded. It's not even a glass case. It's chicken wire. You can you can steal this thing with nail clippers. Yeah. Uh, not well protected. I, I just again, too easy. <laughs> Way too easy. Way too easy. But the gaslighting demon guard dog shows up and they tussle for a bit. And then she grabs a letter opener from the desk and then your knife is in the dog. I just wanted to say that line again. That was tough guys. Don't dance. It's I, funny yeah, I, I remember. That's it's a good, it's a good one. Good movie. But she takes the Satan book and some of the potion. I don't know why she didn't take the whole thing. But she takes some of it, the blue paint, and then... She only needs it for one thing. True. I would have taken the whole thing so that they can't use it against her, but... I mean, she'll go back for it. I mean, she's taken over the body. she's got a plan. She doesn't... The the person who is going to be using it, you know? Yeah. She'll have access to all the blue paint. You're right. But on the way home from the mansion, she has a stroke and crashes her car. This fucking movie's so wild. I love it. Yeah, it gets very strange all of a sudden. Like, the the last few, uh, like, the, the last, like, 20 minutes are weird. 
Mm-hmm. Like it just sort of hits into high octane because it's a pretty slow movie up to that point. It's sleepy. It's like I said, the brown and green color palette is very uh, cozy and relaxing. You know, it's it's like being in uh, a billiards room the whole yeah. time. Yeah. And it feels like we're at the climax because she's found out about the about the Satan stuff. We sort of are. 20 it is a long like climax. Climax, actually. yeah. I mean, climax. It would be the action part. There's not like a ton of action after this. No, no. Yeah, she wakes up in the hospital with her friend, and she tells her, "It's like they're killing. They killed everyone. They killed uh, Eli's wife. They killed. They killed Abby, and now they're gonna kill me." And her friend's like, "Honey, uh, you're really not." doing so good like you just had a stroke i I don't think you understand uh the the sort of situation you're in this is the friend that she had the the junk shop with yeah yeah and she's like look it sucks that all these people died but there are actual real circumstances behind it but your husband is probably cheating with roxanne and you do need to get a divorce and i'm really sorry that your affair with bill didn't work out and she's like no i need to do the satan ritual though He's like, nah, I really need his body. That all in all the body, mm, though, I don't think you understand. (laughs) And she's like, okay, well, you're being weird. I guess I'm done. So at nighttime, she she carves a pentagram into the hospital floor somehow without being noticed. But it's pretty dope. It's it's red. It's better than the finger paint pentagram. It's like so much better. Yeah, uh, the the blue finger paint one is like, okay, blue paint. Very devilish. <laughs> but no, carving it into the floor of a hospital, that's hardcore. That's real devil shit. No yeah, wonder the bad. devil takes her side first. Over, you put uh, in the lino. Yeah, even yeah. though he's had lots of experience dealing with Roxanne. This is a bigger get. Yep, totally. Like, <laughs> And Satan shows up in the hospital. Yeah, I mean, you gotta. He was summoned. <laughs> Yeah, he was summoned. So he shows up and she's just like, Master. And now it's time for the plan. She uh, goes back to the mansion with a wrench. and <laughs> She just wraps it in a towel and fucking wraps it in a towel. Hits Roxanne in the head with it. <laughs> Knocks her down the stairs and that's. Yeah, hits it's her a in simple the head plan. With the I mean, as as we've said, all of it is very easy. <laughs> There are no complex plans involved here, even though we have a whole weird body swap. It's surprisingly straightforward. Mm-hmm. Uh, the real Paula uh, committed suicide, or, well, I guess the real Paula is in, inside Roxanne now. Mm. But before that, the Paula body had committed suicide in the bathtub with the Roxanne plaster on her face. Right. So that so now she gets to be Roxanne. She gets to be Roxanne. And Alan Alda comes in and he's like, guess what I heard? The housewife's dead. Oh, she <laughs> is. That's awesome. I don't know anything about that. I'm Roxanne. I can't wait to start our new lives together. Da, 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 da. Love American <laughs> style credits roll. What the fuck just happened? And that is the end of the fucking movie. <laughs> yeah. They freeze frame on them making out. Uh, what the fuck? Yeah, it, How it do really we feel about this resolution. Loop. When it just hits the freeze frame, it's like, oh, <laughs> okay. Uh, we're, we're not going to. It's like she's not getting any uh, 
revenge or anything. She's like, oh, yeah, no, I'm just going to continue this relationship. We'll, we'll just reestablish uh, our our uh, uh, marriage because that's, you know, the, the important norm. Well, she got revenge on Roxanne. Well, sort of. She became Roxanne. I don't think she ever really wanted to become Roxanne. She kind of hated her. But yeah, she wanted that Alda body. That's true. Everybody wants that Alda body. Them Alda hands. They must be real good. Great hands. That's what started the whole thing. It's true. Yeah, wow. This, <laughs> like, it's, it's such like a straightforward uh, Satan conspiracy get out thing until she decides to do the devil shit. I love that she does. Yeah, her making the decision to uh, just flip the script is like, okay, I'm going to be a devil now, too. That's the best. Th- that is what drives the movie up a peg for me. Oh, totally. Even though it's way too easy to do so. <laughs> like, I thought she was just going to take the book and burn it so they, could, so they couldn't do more devil shit. I'm so glad she decided to do the devil shit. Well, it, it definitely rules that, that that's sort of how it concludes, because it's just such a, a weird note to turn it into at the end. Yeah, like, and what's the it, relationship going to be now? Oh, bizarre. And I, <laughs> it's just, I feel it's necessary for how stupidly easy it is that it does end up being like, well, if it's that stupidly easy, obviously the hero should do it too. <laughs> I'm just imagining when Duncan finds out what's going to happen. It's like, well, you can't be mad because you did it to us. How will he find out? And again, how much of it is him? I, I'm yeah. still not fully convinced that uh, Alda's or, or Miles is entirely non-existent anymore. I just think that he's subsumed in that he doesn't care. <laughs> it just seems like he's just willing to go along for the ride. Yeah, sure. I'll go into the sunken space. Yeah. I'll watch my hands uh, do really good piano shit for, from really far away. That's cool. Oh yeah. You're, you're fucking my wife and this hot girl, man. I wish that was me. I mean, I, I kind of feel like he, they, they just are sharing the body to an extent and it's just, he's not really, in control of things, but he doesn't really seem like he's interested in controlling things, and he never was. Hmm. I do get the impression that, yeah, he he kind of would prefer it this way. Yeah. I don't think he's too put out. <laughs> put out so, of his own body. So if... The, oh, <laughs> he didn't quite get out. No. So, so if that's the case, how much of Roxanne is still in the Roxanne body? I mean, I would have to imagine enough that she can continue to do all the Satan stuff. Cause obviously, she's going to. Hmm. So so they could be, like, doing Battle of the Minds for the rest of their lives. Sure, Just, why not? I'm down. Well, I, I don't think Duncan really has any sort of powers in that sense. It, it seems to just have always been Roxanne who is doing it. Good point. Which is weird for the point that she's so easily defeated because it's just, <laughs> again, all much too easy. But, you know, it's fun. Honey, you have to you have leave? the twist. Honey, I told you to get a safe for our devil shit. Don't need a safe. No, you don't Who's going to come in here and take it? It's an art community. We, we all rich. trust Who's each gonna... other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Totally. Including huh. the ones who are serial killers secretly, because that's always a thing. Oh, yeah, yeah it's, it's a fun movie. It's weird as balls. I I liked it a lot. I yeah. I liked it 
yeah, no, I, I really liked this movie. I, I really like the heroine, actually. I don't know why. It just she rules. It's a pretty good time. It's silly as hell. Uh, it's it, it, it's got some major plot holes, but, you know, it's it's a cozy, cozy experience. I, I do just love the color scheme and just the 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 quiet energy of it. It's it's a pretty low key watch. Mm-hmm. Love, love the dog article. Dog article is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, really great uh, precursor to movies like Get Out and uh, and Eyes Wide Shut. There's, and there's The a Exorcist. And The Exorcist. Hadn't come out yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, definitely strong some, recommend. See some fucking pre-mash Alda where he's really hot and everyone wants them hands. So <laughs> Everyone. Any last thoughts before we move on to our third and final section? Love, love, love. Mm-hmm. And we're back for our third and final section, the Watched Stacks. We're going to talk about other movies watched in the past week and decide what we're going to cover next week. So All I think right. uh, 12 pictures from the Watched Stacks to begin with. Cool. First up is Ski Patrol. Now, I've said before, I love me a ski movie, even if it's bad. This is a bad ski movie, but I don't love it. Uh, it. It's a 1990 ski movie. It's from the people who made Police Academy. It's Police oh. Academy-esque. <laughs> uh, but, you know, a ski hill. So, you know, it's the, the ski patrol. And there's, like, some bad guys trying to discredit them. So they'll oh, get... Oh, no. And they're, they're, like, trying to ruin the ski hill's safety record so that they'll get shut down because... Uh, Evil Land developers, you know, it's it's one of those what movies. What they do. Slobs v. Snobs. A lot of really familiar comedians, uh, but very early in their careers. Like, there's a really young George Lopez in this, Paul Feig. Oh, oh wow. Feig does a whole musical number in drag. <laughs> okay, cool. It's got Kenny Banya, <laughs> you know, the guy from uh, fucking... I, I can never remember the name of the actor, but he he's Banya on Seinfeld. Gold, Jerry Gold. Oh, okay, yeah. One of those Ski Patrol too. <laughs> nice. Here, strange movie. Uh, next we've got Murder Story, which is uh from the Eurocrypt of Christopher Lee Volume Two. Oh, I remember seeing this poster. There's a rad BMX dude jumping over a car with, I think, Christopher Lee's face in the background. Yes. Uh, really fucking rad uh, poster art. <laughs> uh, I, I like it's kind of a fun movie. It's much more low key than you expect, although there is indeed some fucking dirt bike action more than you'd expect, honestly. But okay. the, the dirt bike stuff is it's it's established right in the opening scene where you have our main character, who is not Christopher Lee, by the way. Mm. He's a teenage fan of Christopher Lee, who oh. uh, Christopher Lee's character is a, a famous novelist. Oh, okay, cool, cool. So they're in Amsterdam, and he does not happen to know that Christopher Lee actually lives there. He's this very reclusive guy, and he meets him at a book signing later. Okay. Uh, so he... He meets him and he's talking about how he wants to be a writer and he tells him, it's like, oh, well, I like to, you know, get different stories out of newspapers and you just sort of connect them all together. And then he's telling him about a few things that he's put together and how uh, these could sort of fit together. And they start investigating them and it turns out they actually 
are related and it's this whole vast conspiracy and then you know hitmen come after them oh of course that sounds fun though it's kind of fun it, it's sort of low-key you do not get as much christopher lee as you might like from him being the big name and face on the poster there is a part where uh someone saws down a tree and lands it on someone as a hitman <laughs> thing that's pretty funny <laughs> it's such an inefficient way to kill people though yeah I mean, it, it both does and doesn't work yeah uh strange and then i completed the euro crypt of christopher lee volume two which means that is a stack completed oh uh, one of two completed this week as a matter of fact. oh my uh my. but the final one in the set is mask of murder and i sent you a few clips from this one Oh shoot, I don't think I don't think I watched them. So it's a Swedish giallo, very late period, like late 80s. Oh, okay. Uh and the director Arne Matson, uh he's kind of the guy who invented the giallo. <laughs> oh. I, he he made this movie called Red Mannequin in the 50s that sort of established all the tropes and uh, style of the giallo in Sweden. And this is him coming back to it in the late 80s. You got Christopher Lee again, mm-hmm. of course. Uh, for whatever bizarre reason, even though it's shot in Sweden, it's set in Nelson, BC. Oh, you're right. No, you yeah. were. I, I remember you telling me about this now. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I'm Christopher Lee in Nelson, BC. Yeah, I'm a Canadian uh, in, inspector. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that's really weird that really throws me off is that they always say flat instead of apartment. It's like, you guys didn't research this very well. <laughs> so, like, I thought it was going to be very similar to the other one because Christopher Lee gets shot in, like, the second scene of the movie. It's like, oh, shit, is he just not going to be in the rest of this movie? Aww. And then there's, like, a whole half hour where he is not in the movie. It's like, oh, this is a little slow. But it's sort of a slasher movie, sort of a giallo, because, you know, you have our slasher who's just in a white mask and who looks kind of like a snowman. There's this girl who calls him the snowman, who's the one witness. Okay. He he gave you all the clues. Um, but fortunately, Christopher Lee does start showing up again after, like, there's this long stretch where he's not there. But then, like, they start get it coming to him in the hospital. And every time they do, they're, he's like the audience where he's like, what do you mean you haven't solved the case yet? Haven't you looked at this? And the, the, there, there's this part where there's uh, this child psychologist interviewing the kid who was the witness and just doing her piss poor job of it. And her explaining everything to them. And it's like it, it cuts to him listening to a transcript or listening to a tape of it. And he's like, this lady doesn't deserve to have her job. How are you people not seeing this? And he plays it for all of them. It's like, you don't get it? And he explains it in detail. Like, now go out and solve this fucking case, you idiots. I hate you so much. <laughs> so that, that stuff is pretty fun. And then eventually right he is able to go out and continue the investigation. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, next, we've got Silent Night, Deadly Night 4, Initiation. Garbage day. So this is the one where it becomes Clint Howard. Okay. As a... Uh, uh, Ricky. Right, Ricky, Ricky, because Billy might not exist anymore. Well, this is the one. This is the one where it's like, I guess, uh, yeah. No, I don't know if this one even mentions the other ones in any way. Come to think of it. 
He's just, there's just a character who's named Ricky, and it's set at Christmas. Oh, okay. <laughs> and because like he is this homeless guy, Ricky. Now he's just this homeless guy, Clint Howard. He doesn't have like a a glass dome on his head where you can see his brain, like in number three. Okay, they fixed that. Yeah, he's just a he dude. Got better. Yeah, he he just looks like Clint Howard, and he's homeless. But there's this coven of sexy witches who he kidnaps people for or commits murders for, I guess. Sure, that's a Christmas thing. Yeah, it's witches. Um, yep. and then it, it's set at Christmas. Uh, the you know they there's this lady who they they want to be part of their group. So uh. I don't know. <laughs> it's weird. It has nothing to do with the other movies in any way. It's got a lot of really gross body horror. <laughs> okay. Pretty good practical effects. Uh, oh. An obvious step up quality-wise from the previous several. Good. It's a Brian Yuzna film. He did Society, which is kind of a big one. Oh, right on. Right on. Next, we've got Quai des Orfevs. This uh, has been floating in the stacks for a while. Yeah, this I... is one from, like, the top three. Yeah, I recognize the poster. So this is a Henri-Georges Clouseau film, one of the early French noirs. Uh, and it's a Christmas noir. It's set at Christmas. So All very right. snowy. Uh, and it's it's a real low-key, chill movie that's, you know, it's it's deep in the noir atmosphere. You're just kind of living in all of those shadows. And it's not so much worried about unraveling the case. It's more just, let's hang out with all of these people who are either perpetrating crimes or covering up the crimes or investigating the crimes and just get to know them all and really live in that atmosphere. Man, sometimes that's what I'd rather do than solve the case. It's pretty good. It's one of uh, my so, favorite things about The Wire, actually. Totally, yeah. And it, it's that sort of feel where there, there is this police detective who he has that sort of feel where he just kind of wants to get to know all of these criminals because uh, those are the people he deals with. That's who he's learned from. He's a cop. He has no actual education. Like he says this and he's like, I, I have no real education. We don't go to school. We don't uh, have any college for this shit. So, you know, I've learned how to live my life through all of the criminals I've investigated. Like I, I learned how to do my taxes from this uh, one loan <laughs> shark guy. You know, this is how I live my life. Cool. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, right on. Uh, and set in '40s Paris, so yeah, cool. Ooh, ooh, that's that's a setting I'd like to see, actually. And snowy, it's Christmas time. Uh, '40s Paris, meaning after '45. I th- well, it's it's a film from '47, and it doesn't reference the war, so I guess okay. so. Okay, all right. Yeah. I, I, I don't think it really ever mentions the war. And uh, Clouseau had some weird times during the war. Oh. Uh, like, he he got blacklisted briefly during that time. He made a movie called The Raven or Le Corbeau that uh, got him in a lot of trouble. <laughs> but he, he made it through. Well, that's good. Uh, that's good. Yeah. Uh, next up, we've got Samurai Reincarnation. Ooh. This is the next one in the Sunny Chiba set. We talked a bit about the plot of this one last week, which is pretty fucking wild. So uh, this, this is based on a true character, true true historical figure who was this leader of a Christian rebellion, a Christian samurai rebellion. Oh, oh man. So the history of Christianity in Japan is crazy. Interesting. Very interesting. Do you yes. ever see Silence? Probably not. No, I didn't, but you told me about it. That's a Martin Scorsese one. Right. 
It's his one about Christianity in Japan. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that that is some <laughs> that is a crazy story because they're still samurai, but they're Christian and. Hmm. Yeah. So there, there's this guy who he he's a pretty significant figure in this. He was the leader of this really major rebellion where they executed thirty-seven thousand people by the shogun. Oh. Was he, so, is he a screaming shogun? No, we don't really get much of the shogun okay. himself in this. I feel maybe a little bit. You know, we do get him. I, I feel like they go for revenge on him. Uh, oh. But anyway, the, the the Christian leader guy, he's like, well, this sucks. Uh, you know, they fucking killed all of our guys. They killed 37,000 people. Where was God for this? I'm going to denounce God. So he denounces God. <laughs> he said, I'm signing up with the devil. That guy seems like he can get shit done. And the devil's like, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to let you uh, pick a team of people who want vengeance, who are in hell. You can go get a bunch of guys, uh, get some people who really want their vengeance. He puts together his little super team, and they go after the Shogun. And you're like, Damn. we're going to burn down Edo Castle. Damn, that sounds badass. It's fucking rad. It's really great. <laughs> <laughs> totally bangs. Uh, next, we've got Cujo. Oh, the uh, the sequel to Dead Zone, sort of, kind of. Yeah, I mean, the book is. It, it does not mention it at all. It, that part is in no way referenced in the movie. Well, it references some of the book stuff about it, because, like, they have a couple scenes where they're like, man, something's weird about this kid's closet door. It just won't close, and the kid's saying that it's haunted. And that's the stuff that is, like, they're in the house, where the deputy killed himself in oh. Dead Zone. And Sheriff Bannerman's in it, too. He gets... Spoilers, he gets eaten by Cujo. Aw. <laughs> Is he the same actor? Nah, just oh, okay. some guy. Darn. Uh, oh, well. But yeah, it's fun. Uh, it's it's a very lean one. Uh, this is the first time I've ever seen it. It's rare. For, this is like one of the major Stephen King adaptations that had escaped me until now. Oh. Uh, it's directed by Louis Teague, who did Alligator, that we covered in a little while back. Oh, Alligator is fun. Yeah. Uh, Louis Teague, just a really strong exploitation guy. He really knows how to do an animal attack movie, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's Dee Wallace, who's like the big 80s film mom. She was the mom in E.T., Okay, okay. Uh, and other stuff. You, you'd you know her from a bunch of things, I think. But Probably. Her and her kid, are uh, they, they take their broken-down Ford Pinto to go get fixed at this guy's uh, sort of barnyard auto shop. Okay. Not knowing that his dog has already killed him and his uh, the other guy who works with him. And, you know, they're just trapped in the August heat in this Pinto while this huge St. Bernard, Beethoven, you know, Beethoven from the Beethoven yep. movies. Yep. It's the same dog. Oh, it's like it's that actor. Yeah, that actor dog. Yeah, it's he, he, this is him before he was Beethoven. Cause it's oh, like shit. OK. And he's rabid. You know, he's been bitten by a bat. Uh, and yeah, he, he just. It's them trapped in the car with this dog or with the dog trying to get at them for a considerable portion of the movie. That sounds interesting or it sounds like it could be interesting. It's very good, like pretty much no supernatural, which is unusual for one of these. I guess none, really. It's it's sort of just a straight up thing. And yeah, it's it's uh, very intense. It's it's very well made. It's good. So, stuff. so so he's not a devil dog in this. Right. He's just a rabid dog. Shit, that's that's kind of scarier, I think. Yeah, it really is. It's it's just 
an intense thing. Yeah. Uh, next, we've got Too Much Too Often, the last one in Doris Wishman, The Moonlight Years. Are we referring to how much they film inside of that apartment? <laughs> uh, it's it's an apartment-based film. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we Last time we were talking about, huh, it's got a male lead character. I don't know if it's going to be so much of ladies in apartments putting on and taking off lingerie, but yeah, it is. It's still, oh, okay. it's still mostly bad. <laughs> it's just that uh, they're not the main characters this time. Uh, the, the main character is really fucking loathsome in this. Oh, <laughs> so he's a dom. It's sort of his side gig. His main gig is uh, blackmail, which right. you know he uses his dom business to gain blackmail material. Obviously, oh, uh, don't do that. Yeah. It's, so opening scene is him in fucking mirrored shades with this pasty businessman uh, tied to a radiator, and he's whipping him for money because you know he's a dom. That's just him doing his thing. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he finds out the business that the guy works in and he goes and blackmails in into getting a job there. And then he starts dating the guy's daughter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the title, I have no idea what it has to do with fucking anything. <laughs> too, the, too much stomach? I, I don't know. Uh, re- really fucking crazy ending in this one, too. Uh, good stuff. But one of the problems is this one's one that's from a something weird video tape master. So it's VHS quality pretty much like it's, it's a decent, like it's a high quality VHS tape, like an S VHS, but right. You know, it's, it's not film quality and it's got a watermark that says SWV on it, the whole movie, which is kind of a bummer. That's a bummer. Yeah. Uh, Next we've got battle of the worlds. So it's not the war, just a battle. No, just a battle. Uh, it is a very, very low-budget Italian sci-fi uh, from 1961. And it's it's cheap. It's low-budget. Uh, the effects, they they had a couple models, and they had a bunch of tubing, plastic tubing. So when they, when they get to the alien planet and they're inside the planet, it's just a whole bunch of tubing with some red gel lights. Uh, it's, it's nowhere near the stuff in... This is a directed by Antonio Margariti, who later in the 60s did this series of movies called the Gamma One films that I love. They're not great, but they're sort of jazzy versions of this. This one, right. it's 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 slow. <laughs> it's, okay. it's, it's talky. It's got Claude Rains, who's pretty fun. He is this professor who's a megalomaniac, but he's the guy who knows everything and he always knows exactly the right thing to do, but no one will ever listen to him. Uh, he's got a science hammock, which is great. A science hammock. I love it. He's got his hammock, which he does his science from everybody. Uh, every time he yells, everybody listens. Picks it up for the hammock district. You damn right. He did. Uh, next we've got witch Academy, which is a Fred Olin Ray picture. Uh, sort of its own genre, although it's kind of in the Doris Wishman genre of uh, ladies putting on and taking <laughs> off lingerie. Uh, this, I guess, more dominatrix outfits, but you know, lingerie is in the mix as well quite often. Oh yeah, quite a bit of that in this. Um, oh, sure. So it's it's a sorority, I guess. There's only three members. <laughs> they're they're all doms. One of them is all right. 
Michelle Bauer, who I think we've seen in stuff. I think she was one of the girls in Sorority Babes, probably. Okay. And here's, yeah, she's a sorority babe, except she's a dom. Uh, you know, they're they're all wearing these outfits. They're like these crazy leather outfits. And it's a very, very queer dorm, even though it's never actually spoken. Everybody's like, you know, they, they make jokes about closets and stuff sometimes, but they're all just like, yeah, I mean, we're obviously all into each other. <laughs> but they're roommates. They're roommates. Uh, they, their boyfriends cancel. So there's this pledge who really wants to get in, but she's a nerd. <gasps> so they're gonna they're gonna bring her over just to mess with her, and they chain her up in the basement, and then forget about her. And then the devil shows up, played by Robert Vaughn, classic actor guy. He's he 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 convinces her to uh, use his power, and he's like, "No, I don't want your soul. Souls are boring. That's, that's played out. I just want to mess with these ladies. It'll be more fun that way." <laughs> So, yeah, he turns her into he gives her a makeover and then, you know, she's walking around in dominatrix gear and lingerie herself. Oh, my God. Get rid of her glasses and ponytail. Yeah. Well, literally. Yes. (laughs) And uh, she, you know, she shows up in lingerie and she's pretending to be her hot sister from out of town. Who's like, you know, I don't think it's cool that you guys are so mean to my sister. And then there's also this uh, beast that's showing up in like a rubber suit that's uh got a sucker and like sucks blood out of people's necks and kills them. Uh, All right. <laughs> there, there's a part where they're like, Oh, we should call the police. And then Robert Vaughn as the devil just pops up out of nowhere. And he's like, that's not a good idea. Audiences don't like police scenes. They just repeat things that they've already heard. Uh, we're not going to be doing that. And so, cause like he can show up and influence people's decisions. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty really? fun. That sounds fun. That sounds fun. Next, we've got Cynthia, the devil's doll. Oh, my. (laughs) So, uh, Ray Dennis Steckler, you haven't seen any of his stuff yet. This is like him trying to do an art house film. (laughs) Okay. Him trying to do a 60s psychedelic art house. It's a nudie movie. There's just constant nudity. But it's artsy. (laughs) So, it, it, it opens with, there's these people making out in bed and they're like i'm worried about uh, the my daughter she's in or our daughter she seems to have kind of a weird fixation it's like you need to just stop uh fixating on her she she's too obsessed with you and it like the the camera moves down and she's literally just standing there at the foot of the bed looking concerned the daughter <laughs> and then you know she picks up a knife and she kills them and then burns the house down and it comes two years later she's grown up now okay and it's her with her therapist, and her therapist is taking her through, like, this guided dream journey where she's having all these psychedelic visions of hanging out with a bunch of Satanists as well as her mom and dad. And there's her current lover and just uh, this weird dream world where it's mostly naked people and often she's killing her parents and burning down the house or uh, selling her soul to the devil. <laughs> I've always wanted to do one of those dream journey things, but... Like, how real is it? And if it's real, am I going to reveal shit I don't want to reveal? I mean, probably. The the, the really bizarre thing in this is, like, ultimately her therapist comes to the conclusion, like, well, you need to kill yourself in the dream. uh, And that will bring closure. And Like, you really need to kill yourself. It's like, I don't know if that's such a good idea. It's like, no, no, you definitely have to kill yourself. Just 
in the dream, you know. It's like, how will I know it's the dream? I always feel it's very realistic. It's like, you just need to kill yourself, you understand? <laughs> it's a very weird movie. Kind of like the ending of Inception. Kind of. And last is Evil Laugh. <laughs> See, that's a more evil laugh. It's kind of more of a goofy laugh. It's like, <laughs> in the actual movie. Because oh. <laughs> there, there is a killer who laughs all the time, and that's all we hear. We just see, you know, black gloves. It's sort of Giallo-esque again. Yeah. Uh, but when we see the gloves, whenever they're doing the killings, it's always going, <laughs> which is weird. Uh, you know, standard slasher for the most part. It's a bunch of people go to. Uh, it's it's the spooky setup. There's several couples, and they're each very distinct couples with like. You know, there's the preppy couple. There's the punk couple. Couples who would never have anything to do with one another. Right. Any other situation. And this one, they're all medical students, which I think is also the case with Spookies. So I don't know how much Spookies was maybe trying to remake exactly this movie, Evil Laugh. But yeah, they're they're about the same time. Yeah, I guess so. They're pretty close. And this was really low budget. It's directed by one of the dead meats from Friday the night, Friday the 13th five. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, the, there's a bunch of killings. Some of them are pretty inventive, you know, it's just people at a house. There's one part where uh, someone gets tied up and they get their head microwaved, which is a pretty uh, crazy scene. That's something I haven't really seen before. I, I think I've seen people's heads get microwaved before, but I might be thinking of other stuff. Yeah, I guess maybe that happens in fucking Idle Hands. I hate that movie. <laughs> <Talked> <laughs> the only thing I remember about that movie is the Offspring song. Oh, see, what I remember is walking out of it and having like this existential crisis of like, man, I could have spent those 90 minutes doing literally any other thing. Uh, I, I could have been living my life in any other sort of way than watching this movie. It was a different time then. I watched fewer stupid movies than I did now. But it, it was definitely a time that it uh, it got to me after watching it that I was so disappointed that that's what I had spent my time doing. <laughs> so, you know, that says something about it, I guess. <laughs> so All those right. are our 12 picks. What do you figure? Well, um... So since you've been talking about him a lot, I have been wanting to check out Ray Dennis Steckler. But I got to ask, is there another one in the set after this movie? Or is there more coming? There's lots more. Okay, so I don't because there's some really strong picks this week. There's there's a few more and then there's uh, all his hardcore ones. But there's there Uh, is a handful more at least. Okay, Um, because I was I was thinking about that, but. I want to see this noir you're talking about, the French one. The, uh... Ah, Quiet Orfevs. Yes. Yeah, really good movie. Kind of a, an important classic. Yeah, um, I don't think I've seen a French... Well, I wouldn't have seen a French noir before. Cool. Yeah, uh, it's it's. this would be a good place to start. It's uh, definitely a fairly notable key work from one of the major guys. Henri-Georges Clouseau is a pretty uh, important director. Cool, cool. cool. So we've got a couple quick additions to the main stacks, although, uh, well, I mean, I suppose we could pick from there, but uh, not necessarily. So we've got four additions. We'll just run through real quick because obviously we've completed two stacks. We're Mm -hmm. down to, we've two removed. 
So new additions, we've got La Conde, or The Cop. Sorry, right. <laughs> un, un Conde. So this is another French film, but this one's from the 70s. It's a French uh, neo-noir. Oh, okay. Uh, and it's just, there's a cop who's just like going after, he, he's going rogue after uh, his partner is killed in a drug deal. Or like a, a drug bust or something. Right. And he just like goes on a fucking spree. You know, he, he's uh, <laughs> breaking the law, you know, g- going undercover, uh, blackmailing, cheating, just gunning people down. You know, one he's of those things. Above the law. Exactly. But better because it's not Steven Seagal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next in the Sunny Chiba set, we have uh, Swords of Vengeance, a.k.a. The Fall of Akko Castle. Ooh, another samurai one? It is another samurai one. It's basically it's the forty seven Ronin. Okay, I've heard this. You've heard story. the story. <laughs> everybody, everybody is aware of it. Yeah, it's it's the forty seven Ronin story. Cool. Uh, it's huge. It's a big epic. I think it's like three hours long. Uh, hundred and fifty nine minutes. So not quite, but it's long. Up there, yeah. Uh, next we've got Girl Gang, which is a double pick, double feature with Pin Down Girl. <laughs> one of Kino's Forbidden Fruit series, uh, their golden age of the exploitation picture, just early 40s, 30s, 40s and 50s movies that uh, are, are exploitation before it was like, you know, before you could even have nudity in a movie, where, you know, where they had to pretend to serve some societal function. <laughs> mm, OK, uh, it, you know where they they this is sort of where they were starting to get a little bit more mainstream and could just have kind of a plot. So girl gang, you have a gang of girls, <laughs> you know, like a they, like a bunch of females. Yeah, they're they they're working for a low level mob boss doing minor local crimes. You know, okay, and you know they they're they're selling drugs to kids for kicks, kicks. And Pin Down Girl, uh, this one was uh, famously Racket Girls on Mystery Science Theater. It's about a, a lady's gym. And there's this lady, Peach's Page, who's going to become a ladies, lady wrestler. And there's just a whole lot of lady wrestling. Uh, it's uh, not as uh, interesting to watch as the Santo fights. Let's just say that. I've seen that one before. Oh, Okay. <laughs> They're repetitive. There's a lot of the same movement over and over again. And last edition is Blood Shack, which is the next one in the Ray Dennis Steckler box. This is one of his more noted films, uh, also known as The Chooper. <laughs> <laughs> the Chooper? <laughs> the Chooper, uh, which is just a spirit oh. of vengeance who has a sword. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, I thought it said The Chopper. Yeah, that's what I always thought the first bunch of times I saw it. But, you know, it's the Trooper. It's the Trooper. At, at the beginning of this is a Severin box set. And for the FBI warning, they have a, a scene from Bloodshack in each of them where uh, this cop is telling Trooper. It's like, well, that's all right, Trooper. You just keep knocking him down. You just keep knocking him off. I'll keep burying him. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's it. That's what they have under the FBI warning in every uh, disc in the set, which is kind of fun. That's all right. I love that. I love yeah. That. So this being one of those uh, resolution weeks, we have a bit of a concept here. All right. Since I 
completed two stacks. Obviously, the inactive stacks would be open. But I thought I was thinking about this last week since uh, it was Jay's pick. And when I'm doing that, I just get the run of the stacks. I can choose anything I fucking want to watch. Sure. So the stacks are completely open. What's a movie you want to watch and a movie that you want to talk about? So the, the the obvious parameters being it doesn't need to be something on any of the stacks, but it needs to be something that is there in the stacks that I can grab and that I right. know where it is. So there are some things that I would have to describe as the theoretical stacks. They exist. <laughs> I know that those movies are there. It's just I don't entirely know exactly where and it might be difficult to get to them. You need to do a bit of a reorg from a couple areas. Some things are not indexed, but for the most part. So I intentionally did not prepare you for this so that we could have a bit of conversation about what's the movie you want to cover? Oh gosh. So the possibilities are endless. There's a there's like classical everyone should have seen these this movies that I haven't seen, uh which right. we've discussed a lot about in uh in Yeah, this we've done episode. some interesting stuff. Uh there's movies that I love with all my heart that I just want to gush about. Um, right. There's there's a few of those. You probably know most of mine. Certainly. Uh, there's stuff that I've never heard of that I'm interested in checking out. Oh, gosh. Indeed. So let's talk about it. What's what, like uh, perhaps I could guide you to certain areas. And obviously we, we got to figure if it's something that I can locate, which you know, most stuff, let's say, I, I, I have a pretty good idea of where most things are. But there are a handful of like, not sure if I can find that. Okay, I know. I know what. Okay. Uh, the Godfather. Well, I've never seen the Godfather. the Godfather. You've never seen The Godfather? Yeah, I could certainly do The Godfather. I have I can I I can see the trilogy from where I sit right now. All right. So you you want to do The Godfather? All right. Yeah. yeah. That's a good, that's a fucking great movie. Uh it's a movie I've seen many a time and it's always a delight. Cool, cool. Cool. All right. So then next week we are doing The Godfather and Quai d'Orfez, a real uh, high society sort of week. Big crime films. Awesome. Oh, yeah, they both are, aren't they? Yeah. So like one one more of a, a true crime drama and the other. Uh, actually, I don't know if Corleone's. I think it's sort of fictionalized mafia. Puzo. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure it's fictionalized. I don't think it's uh, based on the real crime families at the period. <laughs> cool. All right. So next week, The Godfather and Quaidior Favs. Uh, do you have any last thoughts before we close up for this week? No, I think uh, I think I'm good. All right, Trooper. You keep knocking them out and I'll keep burying them. <laughs>